Welcome back, everyone, to Grime and Game Appreciates Media, also known as the Grimecast, as well as all kinds of gripes, issues, misanthropic tendencies, and mistaken opinions that we will say with full firmness, only to discover how wrong we are uh, at a later point in time. I'm Browbeat. I'm Nutchucks. And this Grimecast is brought to you by H.P. Lovecraft's cat. So, Mr. Jux, uh, I know that I am full of impressions and discussions and such that have been rattling around in my brain cage. So would you like to seize initiative and speak to things that matter to you before I utterly domineered the flow of uh, interaction? Uh, no, no. Uh, I mean, uh, I would like to tell everybody that, you know, it, it, we're, we're just now back in our schedule of flowing and putting stuff up on the channel, and that's mainly due to me uh, slacking off slightly uh, and being on vacation and us having stuff come up. Well, you looked outside, realized, oh shit, the world exists, and you sort of walked away from the computer, which happens occasionally, but hopefully not. It, too it was it's it unhealthy was, out there. It was more of, all right, I got to work. Oh fuck, I'm on vacation now for a week and a half. I'm gonna go upload some stuff. One day, I'm gonna go play golf. I actually, I went to play golf seven times out of the twelve days I was off, and Would didn't you like to play speak about your golf experience. Yeah, I. Uh, used to play golf with my dad when I worked with him when I was little. I was terrible at it. But I got better as you get older. You know, you listen to people and do shit. Instead of just having fun trying to whack the ball. Um, I think I hold a course record close to my hometown of killing the most wild animals on accident. On a <laughs> golf course. Sure. Accident. Oh, no, it was. I uh, I hit a bird one time. I mean, I hit a line drive with a, like a... I think it was, like it was a, a putter. How'd you do that? It was a three iron. I understand. I understand. Just was, making, yeah. trying to say it's the wrong club that was meant oh. to be for a seven foot drive, and you fucking went for the fences on that one. I I went for the. They were like, "Hey, you're not hit, when you hit it with the uh, woods, which are the bigger clubs." And this was a par five. You're not hitting it straight, but when you hit it with irons, you you hit straight. So I did it, and I hit this line drive. And next thing you know, my you see my ball go over this hill, and it's like a dart. And then you see a like a crow or something just come flopping up in the air and flying and land and hit the ground. We're just like, "Yo, dude, you just you just fucked this bird up." I'm like, "Oh fuck!" So we went and we we I had the best shot, even though it hit the bird. And a few minutes later, I drilled another one and it went to the water because we're right next to a pond and this pond goes pretty far. And I hit it off a turtle, and you just see the turtle fall into the water. I'm assuming I killed it. Wasn't intentional. I just looked and the guy's like, "Go go put the club back." Just, just put it down. Just you are stop. no longer welcome on this course. No, it's not <laughs> the worst. It's not the worst damage I've done though. I was in Biloxi, Mississippi. So if anybody knows about Biloxi, it's a big gambling city. It's right on the Gulf, uh, Gulf. I said Gulf of Mexico, and it is the Gulf of Mexico. But I wanted to say Gulf Coast at the same time. Um, Gulf of Mexico. And this, the the golf course they have is right where these homes are. And it's my first shot, and the it bends left. So what that means is there's a curve that bends to the left and goes, and that's how you do it. Well, I hit it, and they're like, be careful, use a smaller club. And it's me, my brother, the guy who owns a business with my dad. And that's who I've always kind of played with people that I know. And I drilled the shit out of it. And all of a sudden, you just see it going up. And they're like, Baker, wasn't that one of the smaller clubs? And I'm like, or they, that's last name, but uh, like, yeah. And they're looking like, how the hell did you hit it so high and so far? And next thing, all of a sudden, you're... Went to this lady's back patio window. And he's like, get in the car. Go, 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 go. And we just, this lady comes out and starts screaming at us. And he's like, we're not stopping at this hole. We're going to the next one. And we just kept going. 
And he's like, nope, not not even doing it. Just go, 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 go. Led <laughs> the scene of the crime. It's technically what not a precedent. It's not a it's technically not a crime because that's part of the like your insurance for living on a golf course is super high because of that. Because you have no, no, that's that's the response. But the fact that you have to use the word technically before you say not a crime, quite suspicious to begin with. If I did it intentionally, you could say it was a crime. Did I do it intentionally? No. Do I just suck at hitting golf clubs at the age of sixteen? Yes. No, 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 no. You did do it intentionally. You were told use this club. You said forget that mess. I'm gonna use what I like. Oh no! I used the club. I I used the the golf club that he gave me. I just I hit the shit out of it. I mean, I sure. knocked knocked the hell out of it. And it, it's not how you use oh. that club. Um, I got the height that you're required to get with it, and I got more distance than probably what I should have, and it went to the wrong way. For legal reasons, you did everything right. Yep. But uh, I kept playing golf when I moved up there uh, to Washington, and uh, I got better. I practiced a whole hell of a lot, and just. I've gotten better since then. But I kept saying I was going to do that over my vacation. And here where I live, normally in the morning it's like 70 degrees, and by 10 o'clock it's like 90, 95. So I was like, I'll get up, golf course opens at 7, and I'll get to the golf course. And those are its peak hours. <laughs> and by the time I get done around 10 or 11, it'll just be now the max heat of the day. No, I woke up, it was 85 every day, or it was raining. Nice. And I'm just like, oh my god. It's so hot. <laughs> like, I'd walk outside, and I'm muggy, and I'm sweaty already, and I'm like, yeah, like, I know I need to lose weight, but no, I'm, I'm, I'll pass. I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> so as, I, as somebody who voluntarily coats himself, sheens himself with sweat for weight management purposes, at some point you just make a compact with yourself. Like, I'm, this stuff is gonna stick to me for the next five hours. That's just the way it's gonna be. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's my plan, so uh, I don't know if no, we haven't talked about it. So, uh, since the last time we spoke, uh, the which was yesterday. Well, I mean, on on a Grimecast or anything of the sort, like on a computer. Um, yeah. The police department has offered to pay for us to go take. Uh, essentially, we can do stand up and everything, but we, uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu with the guy that I uh, went to school with, his younger brother, fought in the UFC for free. Like, we'll pay for it. You guys go do it. And every hour that you do this, you get an hour of overtime. And I'm like, wow, except the stand up, like we won't pay for stand up. We just want you guys to do jujitsu. But if you do jujitsu, it's paid for also. When you say stand up, you don't mean comedy routines, do you? No, I mean uh, striking. So uh, we're not paying for open mic. (laughs) (laughs) Just come walking in like, oh, what's up with this airline food? Like, okay, Jerry Seinfeld, wrong type of stand up. You go that way. (laughs) And then someone just take him off the stage. and The guy just throws him. You go, okay, (laughs) fuck it. You got the mic. Nobody can take it from you. (laughs) But essentially, yeah, so they're like, hey, you guys can pay for it. That starts in a couple of weeks, so uh, I plan on doing that. And I'm hoping while I do police and I do this for a couple hours that within the next year I may be able to pick up fighting again and have a couple of fights just to, just to, you know, quell that urge if I was any good or not. Yeah, because I had to give it up at such a young age to uh, pursue a family life because I couldn't think with my big head. Pursue a family life because it was financially more viable than the other thing. Yeah, I uh, well, no, it was both were financially viable. It's just I was working part time at a uh, Blows Home Improvement, uh, and I couldn't afford to train, be a dad, and work two jobs because then I got a job as an umpire, which is very dangerous, by the way. Fuck, fuck, oh, yeah, being a cop isn't as bad as being a freaking umpire. You call the wrong person out, 
Mm, you're going to get stabbed by somebody. <laughs> you mean people care about stuff so much they're willing to forget that they're people and just express their point? Sometimes with weapons. Yeah, with, with sports, it's that way because... Just sports. Kids... The only thing in the world that does that. Well, no. I, I guess sports for families here in America. I don't know about other countries. I can't. No, it's bad. It's bad, too. I was making a, a gentle pass at politics and religion, but luckily we just stopped at sports. Uh, yes. Uh, um, it Here, it, it gets, like, I, I get there's hooligans in Europe, but these parents are hoping their kids are then, like, the next Babe Ruth or Willie Mays or Michael Jordan, and when you call them for travel or something, they get upset, and it's like, look, I'm doing my job the way I was taught. You don't like it. That's your disposition, but you're not doing the job. So I got to do the job the way I was taught. And it, it never went over well with uh, a lot of parents. And it you mean to say of... that the parents are so invested in their kids making it as professional athletes because that's pretty much all they've got? Is, is that why? I would say yes, because in when I did it, I was, I was doing it for the rec department. So it's your kids aren't the best. Or you're doing it because your kids aren't real dedicated to the sport or they like the sport a lot. They just hate the extreme competition of Little League or something. And Little League is starting to go down here because it's... There was a bunch of corruption here in my hometown with the Little League. But for... Say it ain't so. Corruption. Yeah. Man. So, <laughs> they, they moved a lot of people. A lot of people came over to the wreck. And this happened after I left, but the, these kids were playing like machine pitch or coach pitch, and they're getting upset. I'm like, look, these games don't matter. In the long run, these games do not matter. Wait till your kid gets to kid pitch, and then find out if he's any good. But no, that's not how, how it played out. I understand. So, it's so. disappointing. We can shrug our shoulders and say that's how people are, uh, or we can create uh, militant mandate programs that restrict people from uh, ever even having these sorts of thoughts, otherwise a loved one dies. Yeah. I uh, I will shut up taxes. I will say that uh, since uh, since our break, uh, I've played a couple new games. Uh, yeah, I've played the new. Well, I don't want to say it's new. It's a couple years old. The Fantasy Star Online Two, uh, free MMO for the Xbox. It's okay. Not not such a big fan. Um, mm -hmm. it, it was long awaited for many reasons. I quit playing uh, Dark Alliance. Oh, oh, that's a pity. What happened? Yeah, it just got boring and repetitive, and there was no one to play with. Oh. <laughs> but it was only a buck. Uh, it was, yeah, yeah, roughly that. Um, I played Donut County and beat it, which is a kind of a weird game. It's like uh, Hi-Ho Calamari or whatever it's called, Katamari. Can't I wouldn't put it in the same league, but sure. No, it, it's not in the same league, because in Katamari, you build stuff up. This one, you swallow things, and your hole gets bigger. Um, you know... Like uh, a porn star, <laughs> and it starts to whistle. It does. Okay. Uh, is is there anything more you can say about Donut County that is reflective for you, or was it just a matter of that was neat? Things it, fall in the hole. Next game. Essentially, that's all it was to me. Like I, I didn't after like the first three stages, I stopped caring about the uh, the story. The story was just essentially about raccoons collecting trash, and you're just like, okay, like I don't need to hear it anymore. Like, it was not difficult. There was nothing hard about it. The difficulty doesn't spike. It wasn't a challenge. So you're just sitting there going, okay, whatever. I guess I got to keep killing the, uh, or swallowing all the whole town. And that kind of got done with that. Uh, I'm playing Darkest Dungeons, too. And that one's kind of fun right now. I started. Oh, I you're, you also got a 
you also got into Darkest Dungeon at the same time I did? The, it came on Game Pass, so I was like, I'll try it. Like I, I've, been okay. try, I've been trying to trying to find new games that I'd want to try, and that one has piqued my interest for a while. Well, Mr. Chucks, please spend a little bit of time talking at me and to the audience about your impressions of Darkest Dungeon. So far, I, Darkest Dungeon, I, I can't give you the full story. Like I said, I've only probably played at most an hour and a half. I played snippets and other things. Because um, I, when I get into a new game, I don't want to burn myself out of it and just play it constantly. Because if I do, there's no playback. Um, there are certain games that won't do that. If you guys have known that when I played like four straight weeks of nonstop Resident Evil with my ass glued to a chair. Um, well, that's because you you told yourself, I, I'm done with the game experience, but I need to hit those objective markers that are important to me in the moment. Because I know that when I'm done with it, I'm not coming back. And then someone else tells you, hey, dude, did you hear there's DLC for this game? And you go, fuck, it's, it, it's dead to me. I buried it in my heart. I'm not going to go back. And then maybe years later, you will. They, I've heard some, like, there was a, I thought I saw, I remember seeing a video at the beginning of this last month that said that they weren't going to do DLC for it. And it's Typically, a shame. Example. I'm sure something's going to happen. Maybe they'll do a, a story address through a different medium, like an animated show or something. Well, there's but supposed... it, does, it, does not, it doesn't have to be Village. It can be just any game where you throw yourself at it. I mean, for you, it would have to be an RE game at this point. But you're done with it. You did, you did everything the initial release can offer to you. Yes. And then they said, for 25 more dollars, you can have some more game. And you feel kind of torn, where you swore it off because you did it all. But you're also kind of curious. Yeah, no, I know they're supposed to do Reverse, and they keep it's not coming out until next year because they're like, we got to fix it. But with Darkest Dungeon, I'll get back to that. Um, What's the setup of Darkest Dungeon? You, I don't know which character is the main character. You start out with two characters, and you have to there, go. There is no main character. The main character is well, that's the guy talking to you who's not around. Ah, uh, okay. I, I like I said, I, I played a little bit, not a whole lot, so. The graphics, I would say, are cartoonish, like a, a high school drawing that someone did. Um, Ouch, okay. But don't get me wrong, some high school art isn't bad. It's not like I'm saying it's bad. I enjoy the art style that it has for this game because it sets it up really well. Um, okay, let's, let's, let's do this, where you address a point. I will restate that point in different words to confirm what you're saying, possibly correct it, and then it will go to the next point. Okay. Um, so, on the point of the story... Such as we know it, in the beginning, the player is presented with a red letter of someone who is was an estate owner, had a lot of wealth, spent a lot of it, went a little stir-crazy, went digging underneath the mansion, found something bad, and then their lands turned to ruin, money basically ran out, and the person committed suicide. But the letter is an invitation to whoever is the inheritor of the estate to say, come check this out. Okay, that the player part... that assumes control of the party of adventurers. Two people who are on a stagecoach to go maybe make some money. And they arrive after a, a combat encounter at a shithole of a formerly glorious estate where everything is miserable forever. <laughs> Begin playing the game. Sorry, you were saying that part? Yeah, no, no. So that part you get, you get your introduction stage. It's cool. You get to see, you get to fight skeletons in armor and uh, a witch is what I'm assuming. It is. It's a sorcerer. 
Um, and you like you said, you explore these dungeons. Before that, you oh. said the art style. Oh, is, the art uh, style. The art style. High school drawings. Yeah, I just some, some, some fucking classroom doodles. You know, who cares? Who gives a shit? Well, no, no, no. Some people can, when they draw in high school, it's like, hey, I'm bored with class. They do very good detailed drawings, but it's like that. Oh, man. Would you say thinking. that the, the black outlines and dark background tones are oppressive in the art style? You could that say that. Everyone, every character looks like they're gritting their teeth or are somberly tilting their head down so the shadows cover their eyes. That's, and yeah, that's every, every character. So, and every monster and every everyone's they're, they're paper dolls, so that the animations are basically stills of a couple of different positions, and the camera trickery makes motion seem believable. But for the most part, it's a paper doll show. Yeah, it is. It's uh. Like I said, don't get me wrong. The art style is not bad. The game is not bad so far. I'll have to play more of it. Um, I've been balancing out with other games at the time, but the art style is not bad. Don't get me wrong. I, the best way I could think of how to call it, I don't know of any other games that has an art style like that. I'm pretty sure there are some that are that way. Uh, I just can't think of it off the top of my head right now. Okay. But it, how about Darksiders? But more, but less colorful. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't know. I've never played Darksiders. Oh, fair enough. So, so yeah. in your experience, nothing's been quite this high contrast. Correct. And it, it's, like I said, it's not a bad thing. Um, it, it, it's a fun game so far. I like the RPG style. I like how you have to be cautious on who you have in the back uh, of your party. Because when you travel, you're traveling through and you have torches. And you have a torch meter and your torches will oh, go yeah. out. So yeah. What? Single uh, file. You're traveling single file, so the order of that column matters because characters will specialize in doing more activities at the front of the formation or the back of the formation. The game keeps this in mind because your characters will have abilities that will reposition themselves as a consequence of using an action, and the enemy will have attacks that will also scramble your party order. So your choices are fight from a bad spot or waste time and turns getting back to where you work best. Yeah, um... I had a, I didn't bring enough torches in the first time I went through, uh, and so my healer, like the little dark plague, uh, a black plague uh, doctor with the plague mask on, uh, kind of went crazy, and we had to put him. You had to you have to put him in like a a sanatorium to keep him calm, and they each spot in the sanatorium has different things that they can react to, and certain ones won't work, and certain ones will work, and they have a certain amount of time that you have to that have to be there so like a week so you have to go get new party adventurers and pay for them and then you keep exploring and trying to keep your party you alive you don't pay for them well it's people ar arriving on the buggy in the shithole town saying uh guess i'll make some scratch here and you say great what do you do doesn't matter get in here we're you're you're going down in the catacombs but i don't want to you're fucking going so what you addressed but didn't explicitly say there is a stress meter as well as a health meter Yes, and people are stressed out over all kinds of things. And the more stress they get, the more nervous ticks and problems they, they, they get. And they require treatment, which is either uh, praising the Lord or getting drunk, spending time in a monastery, or gambling. Stuff like that. Because yep. everyone needs downtime. Yeah, no. It, it, and, and that's about as far as I got. I played one dungeon, and then I haven't been back to it since. And... I, I want to play more. It's got me peaked on what it could be and how much replayability it has with everything that you can do and what how you can set your party up and what happens once you lose a party member. So there, there's a 
There's a bunch of things I'm kind of curious about on how this game's going to be. And I'm excited to see what happens. I had a healer die at a clutch moment of a heart attack. They did mention that. Like, it says that, like, hey, if there's enough stress, these your characters can die of a heart attack. And you're just like... If, if oh, the bar shit. fills twice over. Yeah, I didn't... So, uh... Mitigating stress is very important. And I'm I'm a little further than you. Not super far. But I've tinkered around with some of the basic systems before I'm getting good at what those are. And I would be curious how you react when the game starts to really squeeze your nuts in a way you don't find pleasant. Whether you will walk away, or what you sometimes do, and then really engage with the problem and say, oh, no, you're not going to beat me, I'm going to beat you! And then you engineer solutions to overcome that. I'd be very curious. Um, I am kind of curious if that's how it goes now. Because, like I said, I haven't really played a whole lot, but I, I enjoy games that make me think and make me go, hey, you got to solve this problem and I will want to solve it no matter how long it takes sometimes. If it's if it's a good game. Some games where it's like, here's a problem and you just look at it like, you know what, you've you, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with this. And you just put it down and quit playing it. Um, I also downloaded the game. It's pretty old. Not, well, not old. It's like a couple years old. Maneater. Yeah. It was Wait, on... pretty old. 2019's Maneater. It's pretty old. In in gaming years, it's like having a PC after a year of having a PC. If your PC is outdated, yeah, suck my nuts. It's only a year old. Okay, so you picked up Maneater where you were a land shark flopping about. A boot, you might say. Uh, I haven't... Everything's loving stats. I, I've been having issues with my Xbox running slow, so the download times and everything are super, super slow. Uh-huh. Um, so I have not played it yet. I downloaded it. I'm excited because I, I, I saw videos and people talking about it going hey this is a really good game you guys really you know it, it's, it's fun it's a real stress reliever because it's simple and silly and i'm like oh it's, it's on game pass i might as well just pick it up and play it and game pass on top of that right as i went to go download that one added a bunch of games um found out on pc if you pre-ordered back for blood yesterday that uh you could on the fifth i believe you can start playing the beta for it um if you don't know what Back for Blood is, it, it's a Left for Dead, essentially, with uh, different mechanics, slightly different mechanics. And I, I'm kind of curious on how it goes. Hang on a second. I Okay. If if you pre-order it, mm-hmm. what amount of money are you putting down? You, you pay $69.99, I believe. Hold on here. Let me make sure. So in the age of early access... They say, we don't want to do that. We don't want to charge you $20 for a partially completed product. We want to charge you a full price for an unproven, unfinished product. But you can play the beta because we actually need... We can't afford to have testers, so you can be the testers. We'll get your data. Yeah, That's that's a bold move, I'd say. And People are going to do it. They're absolutely going to say, yeah, man, Left 4 Dead's awesome. I want the newest iteration of Left 4 Dead. Yeah, see, wow. so here, here's the thing. So Back for Blood comes out on PC October 12th. I don't know. Here. Yeah, so I don't think it comes out at the same time for uh, Xbox and consoles because you can pre-download uh, Back for Blood on Game Pass, but you can't get it until um, well, not April. Unlock. It won't unlock until April. Sure. So it's. I, I'm kind of curious if it has get the money now. Give me the full money now, though. Oh, by the way, the season pass is separate, but give me the money now. 
Yeah, so it's it's done. Oh no, it comes out on all of them. So it's just most likely there's probably like, hey, you can't uh, play this on Game Pass until then, but you can pre-download it. So I, I want to see what the how guys. How shitty gonna... is this? Because you have games that are shooters that are popular that just release beta windows. Like the game is months away from shipping. It's basically done. The tweaks they can do are within balance. But how often is that restricted behind a paywall? Uh, it should. It shouldn't be. I mean, I'm watching the gameplay now on Steam. I mean, it is done by the guys who created Left 4 Dead. Cool. Uh, um, but the zombies, I'm watching them move and stuff, and it looks terrible. It looks like it should be like. Hey guys, we did the Sniper Elite games, um, but we lost the franchise rights. So please, in, instead of instead of uh, Sniper Elite, please enjoy our new property, uh, Marksman Veteran, coming soon uh, to your favorite systems. It's it's a completely new, distinct, uh, fresh, bold take on the put the cursor in the guy's head, pull the trigger, and watch the brains come out simulator. Um, sorry, I'll stop making fun. No, Love you're good. Dead. Dead's a good thing, and all the subgenres it inspired are a net positive to the community who want to express their desire to use gun on man, but then man is dehumanized and put into large crowds so it's not promoting discharging weapons into large crowds it's just giving you an outlet for the desire you already possess yeah so right here at the end of the second trailer it says pre-order and get early access to open beta begins august 5th so it does say on the video too that it's game pass october 12th so i don't know why it may have, it may have just had a missed date on it for april which makes no sense okay. it happens um, yeah i also want to play psychonauts too but I, I want to get back to something that was mentioned while I was playing Left 4 Dead yesterday with uh, one of the viewers. Uh huh. They mentioned that Valve has gone downhill that because they stopped making games and they're focusing more on hardware. And because I know if you've, I don't know if you've seen it, the new Valve dock. It's like a, a switch, switch yep. light, I would say, because it only comes with 64 gigs, and that ain't gonna get you many games. Um, depending on the games you're aiming for. Yeah. Because I mean, the switch, the switch was breathtakingly ambitious for saying we will port your Steam library to Switch releases, and some of those games are trying their hardest to run okay, whereas some others, for a portable format, are doing their best. And I understand the public sentiment that says, what? You don't give me full Prime access? Bibbidi bibbidi boo! You're just you're fucking playing Hearthstone anyway. You don't need all the graphical power or the processing raw power. So the Steam dock, and Steam has a pretty poor history of supporting their hardware, is at the very least a experiment to see what happens when you give someone the equivalent, the modern equivalent, of a Game Boy or a DS or Lite. Because the games available on those systems were incomparable graphically and with power to what happens with, you know, console and PC releases. But they filled a niche so well. People love Ace Attorney. People love Professor Layton. People love WarioWare. They love the, the games that just only belong in the handheld format. Who is in Ace Attorney? Who is the other the attorney with the big? Uh, I can't remember what the fluffy white things are that were worn around the neck, and he has the red jacket. Unfortunately, I can't. I can't say. I don't know the franchise. I know it vaguely from a distance. Yeah, my, I'm the my same way. Ace game was NBC Three. <laughs> um, but he had his own game, but it was only released in Japan, which is kind of funny to think of. Why? Explore that. Why is that funny to think of? Well, you think how big the the franchise is here, and they're just like, 
yeah, let's not take this big franchise and the spinoff sequel and move it to this other, to these other countries to make more money. They were just like, nah, we're it's just... not that big here. It's not that big here. As an example for a relative property that had a small hardcore following, it was gnashing their teeth that they couldn't get their hands on it. Yakuza, the franchise, did not get big here until basically like three years ago. And Yakuza 0 released six years ago. And it made a small splash, but it was enough to start promoting more. It took them up until 2020 for Sega to say, I guess we'll port the PS3 games onto the PS4. I guess, begrudgingly. And they were met with financial success. And then they said, let's put it on Steam. And they said, no, computer people steal shit. And Steam sales have shown that people like the franchise alongside with the newest release. It, it's a slow wheel to turn. And whatever fandom Ace Attorney and other Capcom-like and Japan-exclusive properties have here, it's not the same as the core of following overseas. So the companies have outreach programs, not programs, but they have local branches that represent them, and the opinions are quite different. Blank USA might ask Blank Japan, please allocate the budget for us to bring this over, and Blank Japan might say, we don't have confidence, this will move units. Because we're dealing with very struggling components of business decision makers that have no idea what they're doing anymore. No, I, I get I get the economic side of it. Like, hey, we this we don't believe because this character is well liked or something due to polls from where you're at uh, that this this unit will move. And I get that. <clears throat> and I just feel like because everyone I talked to who owned a DS back in the mid, you know, when Ace Attorney was coming out first coming out, they enjoyed it. They loved it. It was. That's all I heard about. I didn't have a DS or anything, so I never played it. I wasn't too I wasn't too stoked about it. I quit playing handheld games until I got like a modern phone and started playing like, you know, Snake and stuff. <laughs> Good pull. Yeah. <laughs> if, you're, if, you're, if you're to say modern phone games, I'd say those are incomparable markets because regrettably. Yeah. I mean, even case in point, there's a, a new release in a near property on phones. And a part of me says, Yoko Taro's involved. I need more of that story. I really would like to participate within this franchise further. But the other part of me says, it's a phone release. There's no game here. It's just images and shapes you recognize moving in a grindable fashion and frustrating you until you say, I want to buy more loot boxes. And whatever story there is, is in snippets. So I'm better served by waiting and then looking at a digest of whatever the extra chapter of this narrative is. So I cannot be, I have to resist being suckered for the property that I feel affectionate for and not submit to the format that will just take advantage of me. And that's a shitty compromise to have to make. And in a handheld, because once upon a time, like Game Boys fit pretty well in the pocket. Switch and et cetera are a little bit less portable. And the problem is the install price is high enough that you kind of, if you're paranoid even a little, you keep your handhelds at home. You don't take them out with you because things might happen, which kind of defeats some of the purpose. But if designers understand the platform well enough, they could take maximum advantage of whatever they're doing to craft an experience that belongs best on that handheld. And if that's successful, they can port it elsewhere or develop a game in that same license in a different context, like Xbox Live Pass or Steam Release, etc. Unfortunately, not all games belong everywhere. They ought to, but the ones that are crafted with intent 
that, that that's exclusive to the format where they're being developed, and they, they land well. Like they take advantage of all the hardware and 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 implementations tools available. They're really good in their narrow context. It's kind of like when you have uh, well, even something as simple as light gun games, Time Crisis, Duck Hunt, everything in between, House of the Dead. I mean, Typing of the Dead is fun. But when you have a light gun component and you release that game in a system that doesn't feature a light gun, but it says, oh, don't worry, just use the mouse. Well, it's not the same experience. A, a, a key component of the interaction is missing. So yeah, technically you have the product available elsewhere, but the very nature of the interaction is, is shifting the tone. If you don't know any better, you just think, oh, this game's okay. But if you do know better, you'll say, man, I, I miss stepping on a physical pedal to take cover. That shit was great. Yeah, I... Uh... So back to Steam Deck. <laughs> yeah, Steam Deck. No, if you have a response to that, I don't know. I no, I said I a lot of things as I tend to do. No, 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 I don't. I, I completely for. I mean, you, you get old Brow be talking. That shit's on you. Oh, I, I know. <laughs> it, I also got I forgot about a couple of games coming out, man. I remember about a month, about what two podcasts ago, we were talking about uh, games that we we're excited for, and I completely forgot coming out later this year. Uh, Warhammer 3 is coming out, and along with Age of Empires 4. Uh huh. And I just, they, well, during E3, they had a, like a little, I guess it was a trailer and gameplay trailer, and Warhammer 3, I just happened to recently see another. When uh, you say Warhammer 3, you mean to say Total War colon Warhammer 3. Y- yes, yes. Uh, Total sub, Warhammer sub, as colon, a. Sub colon Age of Sigmar, sub colon the Skaven are coming. I don't think the Skaven are coming in this one. I think it's the Chaos is the big main bad faction, but there's supposed to be like six new additional factions are going to be added to this one. So it's... You, you mean to tell me that Creative Assembly, who just barely, kind of, finally found a way to integrate Total Warhammer 1 material into Total Warhammer 2 and kind of sorted out the DLC cross-capacity packages are not going to release the third core block game and fuck it all up again for the foreseeable three-year life cycle. Uh, they may. I don't know. I'm excited. I like both of them. Uh, I'm excited because I enjoy the Warhammer, we'll Total Warhammer games. Yes, but they got two to such a state where you don't really need one because two has all of the features aside from the campaign narratives, possibly, unless those are brought over. There's a progression, but... It got to a state where if you start from the beginning, you're going to be exhausted by the time you're done with two, and then three is here. Unless you're not looking for that, you just want the interaction space for the shiniest graphics, the most refined combat engine, hopefully, uh, the race features, the tinkering of progression mechanics, and say, this is this makes me happy, this is good. Because there was a difference between, okay, start on map, conquer map, and here's the story of these characters. Because if the gameplay is plotting enough, then you might say, I'm invested in the dwarf story. And then two-thirds of the way through, you think to yourself, I just kind of... I I don't want to play more of this. I, I want to roll something new, abstract. I just want to be Lizard Boys again. That That's me. I, I enjoyed the Lizard Men. Um, the story in Warhammer uh, 2 compared to yeah. 1 was different because in 1 if i remember correctly i haven't played 1 in a long time there was no story it was just all right you're this faction go conquer these other factions 2 they did the vortex of power vortex of something um 
and that was a story like you have to get all this power and build up your stuff and get all these things set up to go conquer this and stop the dark elves from uh, ruling. And it went pretty good. Not 100%. Like, I didn't like the story, but when they were like, it was when they added all the the uh, factions from the first one into it, and they were just like, all right, you can just have all-out war. I enjoyed that more, and that's what I like to play. But yeah. uh, the last campaign I played of that, uh, I got to a point where uh, everybody was at peace with each other, and there was only five factions left. And I couldn't do anything. Because my army wasn't big enough, and the dwarves and the empire, uh, and who else was it? The dwarves, the empire, uh, they wiped out everybody. The Britannians, uh, Mazdamundi, and the elves, that was it. And I had like four cities, four or five cities, and everyone else had 20 to 30. Wow. And I'm like, well, I'm the tiny turret of the block, but okay. Yeah, man, you could be a vassal state. They treat those good. Oh, yeah, no. I, I'm just going to have to, you know, Vlad the Impaler it up when someone messes with me. Just, you know, shove spikes up everybody's butt in the wrong direction and lube it up so they learn not to mess with me. I mean, that's one way. I would say instead, determine what resource you have that the rest want and begin to pivot them against one another. Just say, well, I will give it to the highest bidder. Mm. So the one issue I always had when this, I, I've almost come to this once. Um, normally the dwarves start to turn on everybody. But the dwarves, for some reason, level up so much quicker than everyone else, and they mess people up so much faster. And it's like, man, no matter how many armies go up against like one army of dwarves, they just wipe everybody out. It's like, <laughs> holy crap! Like, these are the like Bruce Lee, Steven Seagal, John Claude Van Damme, Arnold Schwarzenegger, all of them rolled into one, and they're just as one army. And you're just like, hmm. So just Patton then? Almost, yeah. <laughs> Who there. can stop Patton? Oh, it's Rommel. Uh, no, Pat. No, that was the one bad thing. Rommel never fought Patton. <laughs> Out of respect, <laughs> yeah. the two wrestlers that never got to have a cross match. Yeah, like okay. Let me let me rephrase that. Every time there was a potential for it, they were either off somewhere else or the other one got like restationed. Well, maybe. How about this? Let's make it a romance. Maybe they never wanted to find out. That, that's true. You, if you want to talk each other. They were, they were so hyped up for one another with such mutual respect of, that fucker's doing what? Oh, what a clever son of a bitch. Oh, I'll fight him one day. Sir, it'd be so fantastic if you guys fought. I'll show you. I'll fight him. But secretly, they're just going, oh, no. We now have these public images. Our love can never be discovered. I feel like it'd be more like, uh, it would be like the rivalry between Patton and Montgomery. <laughs> Bernard or Bernard, as I've heard in multiple videos, which is a crazy hey, you know, It's an open relationship. They can, they can compete against whoever they want. Yeah, I mean, they were like, hey, you're, I know you're on my side, but you can suck my nuts. I'm getting there first. Like, no, sir, I want to get there first. Well, that's a friendly office rivalry, right? No. And the implications of the bragging rights. Well, they wanted the bragging rights, but they also hated each other. Like, they openly talked about, you know, not liking each other and that they thought the other one was stuck up. And, like, they would, Bernard would, uh, Montgomery would come up with plans to, like, I'm going to end the war by doing Operation Market Garden. So Eisenhower said, okay, we're going to give him majority of the fuel and oil and stuff that he needs. And Patton, you're going to have to slow down. And then when it failed, Patton was like, you need to give me all this back so I can go do it. And then the Russians came in. We're like, no, we'll take it. Don't worry. <laughs> what are you guys doing over there? <laughs> Not fighting a war? 
the, the more time goes on, the more World War II gets more fascinating. And not for the reasons of combat logistics, but just people's reasoning. Oh, yeah. I like learning now a lot about how the politics and the people behind it are. I still like the war aspect of it. But like, hey, the battles and stuff are fun. But That's kind of troubling. <laughs> I respect the war aspect of it. I don't, I'm not sure I like it. Oh, no, I used to... I, oh, man, I, I enjoyed war. I enjoyed learning about strategies when I was younger, but I wanted to learn... I, I wanted to get a deeper dive into wars and stuff, so learning about the politics, what happened and stuff now has kind of piqued my interest in what what the players... Sorry, I had a bug just fly in my face. Uh, what the players in the war were doing, so it kind of piqued my interest to see what was happening. Well, the resource directors were directing resources, and everyone else was trying to survive the end. Yeah, that, essentially, yeah. Like, he... The somebody easiest... got the federal rights, and somebody got shot in the face. No, I, not somebody. Lots of bodies. Lots of bodies. Yeah. Uh, without a whole lot of context, my wife and I got into a discussion about genocide. And it was actually a very well-balanced discussion, I have to say. Not a lot of emotion, more curiosity. And we had to, we, we first of all, had to pin down some definitions as to what constitutes one or the other. Uh, according to the UN, actually, uh, we also found that the phrase ethnic cleansing is a relatively new term that, if I remember correctly, actually emerged due to some disagreements between uh, Serbs and Croats, which is extra amusing, since this article, the, everything got kicked off by new evidence suggesting that there are schoolhouses all across America, North America, and Canada, and the thousands of Native American children have been found in mass graves, which is highly sensational. Not inaccurate, but the way it's phrased is emotionally charged. So I started asking, over how long? What does it matter? Well, let's, over how long? We got X thousands of baby corpses, right? How long did it take? Oh, they started in 1850 or 1820. So 50 years after declaring we're an independent state. All the way through the uh, early, like, 1900s, right? Okay, so we've got a century and a half, 150 years to kill a thousand, like 5,000 kids. That's not bad. Overall, that's normal mortality rates where they have people getting poisoned, snuck out of getting shot, mistreated, abused, etc. That's just general human behavior. That happens domestically. And then, of course, you go over what defines um, genocide. What a swerve in a conversation, right? What defines a genocide? Uh, in, in deliberate action, how long does it take? And I argued that uh, a good genocide, at least in the modern day, uh, within about six months, you can tell that it's happening, and if it takes more than three years, you're doing it wrong, basically. But if it's a general oppressive act over time, such as we don't want you guys around anymore, usually people don't give up their kids to be taken by another political faction to be re-educated, thus destroying your future. First, you have to take away their means of disagreement or fighting back. So you whittle them down with military force, you force them to sign a treaty, you say you guys gather over here, and you write some amendments, because Americans are good at that, and the amendments also say, well, you got to give up your kids. So you disempower a large body of people who might be upset, but they're not going to fight back anymore because they know recently enough what they've lost to get how little they have now. And that could be seen as a way of eradicating a culture over time by destroying their principle and will to endure. But if you just like spin it as a means to give them a progressive future of Christianity and literacy, according to uh, Western tradition, then it's not a genocide. It's just a cool ad campaign. 
But where this led to was a lookup of like the top 10 documented cases of eradicating a people globally that we know. And wouldn't you know it, uh, the biggest ones are all from the last century. And the top three I'm gonna assume, didn't even take place. Go ahead. I'm going to assume Pol Pot's in there. He's in there. I think he's number three or four. Yeah, <laughs> but basically, then, like, the, the top five didn't even happen on this fucking continent. Yeah, <laughs> like... I'm going to assume the Turks and the Armenians, the one millions Armenian genocide that the Turks refused to acknowledge was in there uh-huh. somewhere. Uh, you got the That's Ukrainians not... and the Russians. Uh, did not break top 10, but that was mentioned, yes. Okay. I wasn't sure if that'd be considered a genocide because I, at the time it was all Russia, but it was the Ukraine, what we call the Ukraine now. Well, uh, it was the Soviet Union. Yeah. But yeah. Well, it's, it's fucking, it's their fault for sheltering Jews, <laughs> which is a messed up thing to say, but that's the argument. Basically, top three involved German efforts, Stalin efforts, and good old Chairman Mao Zedong. Oh, yeah. Well, his, I believe, he... Two stages, two chapters, two waves with this guy. Yeah, he did the Great Famine of... I can't remember what it was. It was the 60s. No, he did not do the Great Famine. No, the famine happened during the Leap Forward. That's it. Okay, thank you. The famine happened during the Leap Forward, but one of the things during the Leap Forward... (laughs) One of the things... Okay, let me, I'll, I'll mention it's one of the things that I learned about the Great Leap Forward that he had him kill a certain bird that helped plant seeds and give food, and they're like, "Hey, these these birds are taking all the crops and eating them." But what they were doing was they're eating all the rotten ones and leaving the good ones, and they were get plant, helping plant new seeds. And he's like, "These birds got to go." And I can't remember what the crop is of some type of fruit. Essentially, like eradicated this crop and these birds out of this out of China and caused part of the famine to happen. Sure, clearly not a naturalist. Did you know that compelling people movers are not men of science? Did you know that? Yeah, you could, I could see they, that. They, you can speak to sentiment and create strong ideology with recognizable markers and symbols, and that appeals to the common mind very easily. We're all susceptible to all kinds of shit, but if you just have strong maxims that someone can say, yeah, that, that kind of person made my life difficult. Now that I think about it, you're right. Fuck that kind of person. And they just drive them out. We don't need no intellectuals. Throw them in the rice fields to make rice. I'm I'm a botanist. I don't do this. Make the rice. Wait, uh, people are people are sick. Where are the doctors? Oh, we starve them out. Yeah, so good. yeah, first first you take the landowners and you execute those, and then you uh, question mark and after that, that uh, social purity. Step last step is social purity. That's that's how that works. But that is precisely why I find it so cute when contemporary youth of America United States specifically cry out about cancel Columbus when they don't understand what actual atrocity is and I, when you just dis- yeah go ahead I always get a kick out of people that use the false uh, fact as I like to call it they gave the Native Americans blankets full of smallpox and that caused them a lot, a lot of them to get wiped out and they're like if you look in the historical records, like, no, that, that didn't happen. Just They're, gave them blankets. Just gave them blankets that, and said, hey, you better keep... Somebody on. Yeah, like, you better keep walking or you're going to die. And they, it was a forced march. Don't get me wrong. It's terrible. Um, yeah. But there wasn't... Just walk, but I'm tired. I don't care to walk. Walk. You have a horse. Cool, walk. Essentially what happened, like, hey, well, Chief, Chief whatchamacallit, I don't know who... There was a couple of them. There was elders... Like, I can't go that there, far. There and, were fucking thousands of people oh, leaders yeah. because 
the say so savages. No, no, no. They had governments too, like anybody else. You want to you want to manage people, you got to subdivide. There is a Native American bureaucracy, or at least there was. Oh, there still uh, is. But we like one at one. It's like saying, yeah, our incumbent is responsible for all the acts of government. <laughs> I I think you grossly misunderstand the situation. Um, but yeah, natives. Oh no no no! I I get. I, I had a conversation yesterday. So there's a, a, a nutrition drink place that I go to has really good drinks and stuff. And I just like the drinks and they're, they're really good and they're healthy instead of me going out and buying a Coke or, you know, getting a burger for lunch. I get this and it helps me out. But he was like, yeah, man, I was listening to the, he listens to JRE. If you know what JRE is. Yeah. And he, uh, it's, it's a highly informative program full of facts. Yes. Uh, he was listening to somebody about the Palestine Israel thing that's going on. And he's like, man, he goes, a lot of these Palestinians are shooting mortars out and these Israels are committing genocide because, you know, they're shooting these missiles and they're blowing up hospitals. I'm like, they're not committing genocide. They're just retaliating. So, like, yeah, well, he's wiping everybody out. I'm like, but it's not an intentional way. Like, they're not, I'm like, the West Bank and Jerusalem is still subdivided. You have a Palestinian side. You still have certain. We have developed the Jew sicker munition. It only shoots the Jews. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he's like, well, they're blowing up these, you know, children's hospitals and churches and stuff. I'm like, hey, look, you know, where they're aiming, they're aiming. Um, but it's not a genocide. They're not trying to wipe the Palestinians off the face of the earth or uh, is, is Muslims. I about said Islamics, but it's Muslims. Excuse me. Um, I was like, they've had multiple wars with this where it's already happened to them. And they essentially kicked everybody's butt, uh, from day one and Egypt stopped doing it. And I was like, don't get me wrong. What Mossad did in the sixties, fifties and sixties, where they were <laughs> sending, mail bombs over to Egypt to stop these Nazi scientists that Egypt got to build a missile system so Egypt could bomb them. I was like, yeah, it's messed up because, heck, you might have the wrong address and you're blowing up some random person. Completely wrong, but it's not a genocide. Um, and he's like, well, they're they're bombing them. I'm like, yes, but they're retaliating and defending themselves. It's Now, it, it is like the offensive lineman beating up the uh, the skinny, nerdy kid because Israel has essentially beat everybody back that's ever come after him, and it's like Palestine really doesn't have a whole lot. You know, they shot like a couple hundred missiles and Palestine's like, well, we got thousands, so we'll we'll just keep doing it. Then they'll call a ceasefire and be like, all right, well, good for a year. And then they'll like shake it out and then they'll, they'll be calm for a year and then something will happen and we'll do it again. Uh, I don't ever see that stopping when you put Israel where it's at. Um, I get that's the native where, you know, Christianity and Jerusalem and everything super important Jews. Um, and that's why you put it there, but when a lot of Muslims do not appreciate Jewish people, it's a really bad thing. Um, but you can also look back in time and see that there was a time when Muslims were pretty tolerant, and they the Golden Age, the Islamic Golden Age, was a huge thing. They let everybody in, but now it's kind of changed. Um, and not all Muslims are that way, and not everybody who believes in Islam is that way. Um, but it's just if one of the... Broadly, as a state practice... If we're referring to what was considered to be the Islamic Golden Age, which I want to say 15th to 18th century, maybe earlier. New, no, earlier. It's going to be like earlier. like 800s to like 14 to 1500s. So longer even. Yeah. But let, let, let's pretend. The idea was that the populace that was under sovereign control of the powers that subscribed to Islamic systems felt confident in their position, had authority over their subjects. And when you say the doors were open, it's kind of like having a two-stage visa. One, 
we'll do business with you because we want to better our state and expand our influence, but we don't get to interact. So don't try to convert our guys and we'll we'll have dealings with you on the basic level. Or two, you're welcome to convert because that way we get to benefit from mutual trade and you get to spread the word further out to bring in more people. So it's not just everyone's welcome. It's a highly qualified relationship. And the hope is that the understanding of the influential force, that being the Islam world, would expand further from the dealings and, by effect, suppress other points of view. Okay, so according to Wikipedia, I don't mean to cut you off there, Islamic Golden Age started in 622 AD and ended in 1258 AD, or CE for anybody who wants to use Common Era and BCE for before Common Era. Okay. So, 7th to 13th century. Yeah. That sounds about right. Right, and it right probably about the ended time because when, uh... the northwestern neighbors said, "We don't like what you're doing. We want to take your influence away." Kind of, I would say it probably because no, this is after even the Third Crusade. Because let's see here, the Third Crusade I think happened in 1190. What? That doesn't take a toll. Repelling guests coming over saying "Stop your shit" doesn't take a toll on the overall economic and social fabric. It does. Your golden age is not unassailable. Just because you won doesn't mean it's going to keep going. Because people say, yeah, maybe they got a point. Or, this this shit's stupid, I'm leaving. Uh, or, lost a lot of our men. Okay. Um, we're vulnerable now. Well, you got to think. You have the Crusades going on. You have the Fourth Crusade that happened in 1202. Um, if I remember correctly, I think it was the Third Crusade that they invaded <laughs> uh, Constantinople. Yeah, let's see here. Let me make sure. The sack of Constantinople. Yeah, 1204. Because they needed to pay off the uh, Venetian shipbuilders. Um, you have that that happened, yes. And then you got to think about it. the Mongol. Uh, let's see. Mongol sacks of bad dead. Let's look that up. Yeah, 1258. So you also got to look. They probably, you might be right on that end. Like, yeah, they're probably getting sick and tired and saying this, but because you got to think the Mongols actually did convert to Islam and. And then they became different. Oh, yeah. The the wild force that bows before no order of man decides, hey, this system of governance and thought parameters really can get you places. We will incorporate this into our culture to be better conquerors. Yeah, so this would have been the second... Piously. Piously before Allah. Yeah, second Mongol Empire, I would say, uh, because Genghis Khan died in 1227, so he did a lot of his... uh, dip dip potato chipping on the islamic empire in china um he even got to egypt if i'm not mistaken because that's his only defeat one of the few defeats that he had what do you think was the was the factor um i can't remember so it was an islamic empire because it was egypt was conquered i think it was the mamluks mamluks yeah, hey, look at that, Mamaluk. Yeah, Mamaluk's a term commonly referring to non-Arab, ethnically diverse slave soldiers. Yeah, okay. And I believe they're out of... Uh... Ethnically diverse slave soldiers. Yeah. That's curious. Most so again, that's, that's the militant arm of a different entity. Yeah, so they were out of Egypt, so that I was correct. It was in the Mamaluks. Uh, mil- knightly military class in Egypt in the Middle Ages. Um so these soldiers were Christians normally who were then converted to Islam and forced to fight for the Mamluk Empire. Um, 
so you got to think the the Mamluks and a lot of the Arab empires were traitors and stuff like that. Not like trade; they traded things. Not like traitors; they betrayed people. Merchants. Say what? So merchants. Mer they were mer merchants. And those of other allegiances. Well, they they were that they had other diversities that helped them develop their stuff. Um, so I. But can't you said soldiers. So if, are they mercenary soldiers or they are being, like you said, drawn in? The, the French Foreign they Legion are, they are of captured. that locale. No, they are yes. captured slave soldiers. They so are not... what is their incentive to fight? Say what? What is their incentive to fight? That they've been converted and forced to do it? Well, if they were converted, no one's forcing them. If, they're, if they are true converts, they go, oh yeah, better idea, and they fight for that goal. But the point was, that that is somewhere where a great conqueror had been met with such resistance that it's considered to be a defeat. So what was the competitive advantage of the military forces in the area that Genghis Khan couldn't? Or was it that he was running on fumes and it bounced off and said, fuck, well, this is as far as I go. Let's get recharged. He actually was dead by the time of the battle I'm thinking of. It's the Battle of Ein Jalut. Um, so he wasn't even fucking there. It was his, so, I, yeah. undefeated. Undefeated. He, Fucked everyone. In more ways than one. I can't remember. He has a he had a military advisor that wasn't Mongolian. I can't remember his name. Guy is highly praised. Uh, he defeated uh, some Russian princes. He up in that's how essentially how the Mongols got there uh, was that he retired, got brought out of retirement, and he I believe he fought this battle too, and then lost, and then he died a few years later. Um, I'll have to go back. I don't have my. I had like. 13 or 14 great courses books I would read. Um, and I, I haven't been able to read it in a while. It's on my old phone and I can't access it because it's the kid's mom's account. But that's all context-free series of events. I understand this is your wheelhouse. You really enjoy the connective elements of this is how campaigns go. Yeah, I'm looking back more at context. So if we well, yeah, so our steps from Egypt towards Medina, we can return to the Israelites, yes, and their neighbors. So, why, because I, the key, go ahead. No, no. What I was what I was getting at is that yes, the, you, you, what you said was kind of true. You got to look at it. The Fourth Crusade happened in 1202, and by the time this happens, and the Muslims finally, uh, and to put it in a funny double entendre terms, beat off the Mongols uh, and pushed them back a little bit. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that the, uh, the Muslims were tired of it. Like, all right, we got to start fucking people up. Whenever you have an idea like a golden age, it is typically defined either by a significant technological point of discovery or implementation, where a resource is so significant that lives are altered forever. For example, arguably, the distribution of a cell phone network. Very, very influential. But it's not the sole element either. Gears have to be spinning in a relatively congruent fashion where societies messy as they are don't just bumble along as they do but shit starts to get really motivated to a given direction like the age of sail can be considered a golden age for many european nations because not only did they get a supreme technological advantage that being long distance sail ships but they started bringing things back home which enriched their cultures by depleting others to be fair but you had a boom of not only the expression of wealth and understanding, but the interest and literacy and cultural growth at the places where wealth was redistributed. So when you have an Islamic 
golden age. I imagine this was based upon discoveries in mathematics, uh, spiritual texts, uh, degree of understanding of what's happening in the sky, what's happening with food, what's happening with medicine. Quality of life improved and people had faith in a set of ideals. Even though they're human beings, they're, they're, they're clever enough to get, oh yeah, this is a cool story. I don't really buy all of it, but it, it seems to benefit us, so I'm going to wear the hat as tightly, as snugly as it will fit. And I just won't challenge it because, again, we're living better now than before. But when neighbors come calling at least four times over, over what, two centuries, basically? Mm -hmm. uh, and the other neighbors keep saying, ooh, ooh, defenses are weakening. Yeah, it's not ultimately surprising over time to have people just be worn out of fatigue. And then you know, the buildings stay, the people stay, but the words change. And little by little, you realize your announcer comes over and says, I'm sorry, sorry, the golden age is over. And that's like 20, 30 years after it was actually over. But that's when people settled in and realized that that's not how it was. Uh, arguably, the people who were born in Russia in 1970, by the time they're 30, they just went, oh, shit. Well, yeah, there was the Soviet Union for another 20 years. But that weren't really the case. I mean, not really. It was winding down. Just no one realized until the fateful day when it was declared. I so, one way to see it. I just wanted to look up golden age. I was like golden ages in history and there was different other topics, but it just, they put, there's only five ages that have happened in the history of what I can see here. It says the golden age, 1710 to 1674 BCE silver age, 1674 to 1628 BCE um, bronze age, 1628 to 1472 BC. And you have the heroic age, 1460 to 1103 BC. And then you have the iron age, which is 1103 BC, and then it says it's still on, go, still going on. Holy oh. crap! Yeah, no, I was like, um, no. Thank you very much, Encyclopedia, for that insightful check. Uh, Golden Age is about as, as intelligent as La La Land. It's a state of mind and assessment with brackets that you impose based on perspective as opposed to tangible facts. But yes, I agree. What I wanted to roll back to was the classy subject of genocide since it's yeah. you know it's a, it's a good topic it's a good time for the whole family it is you and your co-worker were talking you were saying it's not genocide and i, I want to contest that gently because the idea by and large the, the the motivation for the violence is a group of people who have many distinctions but are united by a certain kind of banner kind of agree that there's this neighborhood that they have israel that is affluent, and they don't like them. They just they want it to stop and go away out of jealousy, out of fear, out of resentment, whatever. They want these people to not be here anymore. It doesn't help that all kinds of like really flashy cars are driving up to this cul-de-sac all the time. It's a gated community. You can't get in. Um, and the music just is blaring at inappropriate hours of the night. But they're legally allowed to do so because they have other friends who are also affluent and say, leave them alone. But something in you snaps, you start throwing pipe bombs over the fence, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Is it a deplorable expression of human intent? Yeah, that should not be happening. But the core motivation is, I don't want these people around. And when you say, what do you mean these people? The answer mostly draws back on a way of life, as is exemplified by the declared faith that encourages or assists in this way of life. And at that point, you have an attack on a culture. And that culture is, it also happens to be fairly controlled in who is considered to be part of the culture. There, there are broader rules. It's not just the way you look. It's not just what you say, but there are more factors. 
And because of that concentration, it is far more easier to identify, meaning it's easier to target, meaning the effort itself, however subdued and individual versus organized, like when I say organized, I mean the entire nation's military mobilizes and marches and breaks down the wall. It, they're incidental attacks that don't stop. They just intensify and wane. That is an effort that can be charged as being intended to destroy a culture or highly incentivize it goes away, which is covered under the UN prosecution terms of genocidal action because it's not necessarily by birth. It can be a cultural expression of a shared understanding or belief. So Hutu and Tutsi come to mind. But they look the same, but they believe different things. So Pol Pot's far more efficient. I mean, the man got charged and say, go to work. And when the U.S. said, please stop working, he said, nah, man, this is a, this is a passion now. Which, so which is nuts is because they funded, I think they funded Laos, the U.S. government funded Laos to go bomb the shit out of Cambodia and overthrow uh, Pol Pot. Didn't work out so well. Hey, you, you bribe one guy, the guy gets ideas, you bribe his neighbor. Whoops. Yeah, essentially. Hey, like, well, it's not working. Okay, who else can we bribe? You're not listening. It's not going to work. Yeah, 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 I got you. I, I hear you. I hear you. I think it was... Who else can we bribe? <laughs> I think who the I think it was Vietnam and Laos that helped overthrow Pol Pot. And what was the age on that, sir? What did this happen? What time in uh, in the history of the world? Uh, the seventies. Part, part two. Okay. His own Khmer. Ah, okay. So no, Pol Pot the died Khmer, of natural. Khmer, Khmer. He died of the by the Khmer Rouge. They overthrew him themselves. Nice. Huh? All right. January 7th, so, 1979, Vietnam troops seized the Cambodian capital, Phnom Phinh, toppling the brutal regime of Pol Pot and his Khmer Rouge. So it was the Vietnamese. So we left in 76, the American government and the U.S. troops. Uh -huh. uh, Vietnam becomes its, you know, it's there's no more north-south Vietnam. And the Vietnamese go, man, you're messed up, and invade Pol Pot and take him out. The Vietnamese say, now that that bullshit is over, <laughs> let's go take care of business. Oh, man. I, I love global politics for this very reason, because it's when you're in the middle of something and you're a regular person, uh, not only do you fail to grasp the, the whys behind anything, you will actively eat alive anyone who says you shouldn't be doing this because you're in the moment. And then afterwards, if you decide to search for answers and you get them, you can never acknowledge them or it will destroy you. You just had to say things like, we, we we sure did our best for whatever principle we did it for. Yeah, whatever reason we did this for. You know, his was to... Uh, I don't know what his whole ideology was, honestly. I have to look more into it. Like, I know a little bit about Pol Pot. Um, I knew that he got overthrown. I knew... I he, you, you can sum it up as, I fucking hate certain kinds of people. Followed by, wait, you're going to pay me to enact what I already want? Okay, where do I sign? Yeah, essentially. I mean, is that how... But, see, the, the conversation about genocide was more of a happy one as opposed to a truly contemplative one. It was more to uh, alleviate the sense of guilt and white guilt and outrage of how dare certain culture do this to other people. And again, over a long time, over, over a century and a half, basically, versus a highly intense, deliberate extermination action that happened over two years, maybe five tops for full concerts. I mean, to explain certain things like when you have a city-state, well, you, you have a national state that has agreed that it's going to pursue 
uh, selective termination action for certain kinds of people they don't want around. You know, gays, liberals, Jews, people of colors we don't like, whatever, right? World War II, circa right around then. Mm -hmm. What people don't understand on a general level, you can market that very successfully because you basically have to um, crank up industry and civil development to lay down railroad tracks to build entire cities to facilitate that kind of action, which really reads like job creation uh, to anybody who is minded of national pride. Because the sheer amount of breathtaking effort it takes to, to, to put that into motion, by the time they're packing people into wagon carts under surveillance guard to process them, I mean, the work's been done, and it's probably lauded and celebrated. The trouble is, if you go to question people who are there to do the work, you know, your everyday average citizens, not the ones drinking the SS Kool-Aid in one example, but the ones who say, hey, listen, I, uh, I've been a welder, and they're having me weld in this cool new place, and there's men and vehicles and steel and gas everywhere, so this is really booming. I don't know what they're doing here, but, you know, I, I specialize in barbed wire, so they, they brought me in as a contractor. It's, you get the, you get the everyday uh, testimonies of, well, what do you do? Oh, me, I drive the truck. I wash the pens. I flip the switch. People doing their jobs. The only ones you got to watch out for is the ones saying, wait, they're paying you? I do this shit as a volunteer. How, do you, how did you get that pin, Hans? Perfect attendance. Those are the ones you might look at and say, okay, this is, this is a way to express what you feel inside in not the healthiest of ways. But on the other hand, if we all decry and say, this is awful, then why are we so willing to do it? or turn ourselves blind to the reality of the context of our situation, even as we might say, yeah, man, yeah, yeah, what they're doing over there, over the mountains, those people, yeah, that's messed up. Oh, us? Oh, it's, it's completely different. It's way different. Like, how could you even compare us? That's the hypocrisy. That's the issue I take delight in exposing. Uh, I don't know if that qualifies as a rant, but that was some of my sentiment over having a friendly, laugh-laden discussion uh, over genocide. Then we made dumplings. So positive experience. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't often get into that conversation about genocide and everything. I mean, I, I think the last time something frustrated me on the sort was that uh, I don't a, f a few years ago when they were tearing down all the Confederate statues. Completely don't care what they do with the statues. It was built way after the Civil War. Not my not my care. Uh, a friend of mine was like, when are they going to tear down these these slave monuments? And it was the pyramids. And I really wanted, and I had a conversation with them later on, I'm like, you do understand that they have proof now that none of the pyramids were built by slaves, right? And he's like, no, they were. I'm like, no, there's there's written documentation. Uh, the Jews were mercenaries um, for Egypt. And everybody who built the pyramids were farmers during the off season. Like, okay, it's not flooding anymore. I can't go plant crops, so I'm gonna go work on this. They were, they were paid too. They were paid in beer, which was a, a great thing back then. Who doesn't like just having fermented? Well, it wasn't money. But where do you think the money would go anyway? Yeah, and I'm just like they weren't built by slaves. And I'm like, well, what about the Acropolis? That's a UNESCO world world site, or the you know, uh, Flavian Amphitheater, known as the Roman Colosseum. Or the Pantheon. I'm like, all those were built by slaves too, but they're historical things and you, you learn from them. Um, do I, am I saying slavery is great? No, but do, I, do, you, do you tear those down? Now, these statues, on the other hand, aren't built by slaves. They were built by people who just wanted to keep the, the glory of the Confederacy alive many years after 
you know, the Confederacy has fallen. Um, even Robert E. Lee didn't was like, there's no reason to praise these people, you know, just get it done and over with. And, you know, it, it happened, it happened. Um, the idea of slavery is underdeveloped in terms of communication. It's a juvenile knee-jerk concept much of the time because the idea of slavery turned flatly. You can say, you can focus on the part where a human being is someone's property. You can say that, and that's dehumanizing, and in some academic applications, that is true. Then again, it's property that one must maintain because slavery doesn't happen. It could happen if someone raided a town, captured people, forced them to stay somewhere, and broke their wills until they said, the only way I can survive is to acquiesce to the demands of my captor. But to capture people, you need people. To maintain people, you need people. You need systems interacting to foster, maintain, develop, and then attune people to a purpose, and then say, well, keep doing that. So people who are willful and try to escape, it's not working for them. But it's a set of arrangements. So you can say slave, much as people like to point at the Roman Empire and say, yeah, their entire military core, most of it, was slaves. They were indentured servants. And as you might say, they were compensated well if they continued service and if there was the ranks and if they got anything close to the elite guard. Their life was luxurious. But the arrangement is you have to do what we tell you. And there's downtime. Like, we manage you well as a asset of the state. There are, is time for luxury and there's time for suffering, and there's a balance between those. So you portray backbreaking labor, labor with whips, and I'm sure that has happened, but maybe that is a substandard way of handling your production assets, because after all, it's an arrangement. And in our reality, in the way we live, you have to contrast the, the notion of freedom is I can do whatever I want, and can doesn't mean will. You also have the freedom to waste away whatever it is you might want to do as an opportunity or as time passed. But at the same time, you could say, oh, you're a slave to gravity because you thought you were going to be an astronaut, but that is forbidden to you, so now you're a slave. And your response might be, oh, I guess I'll just go live my life then. I'll, I'll, I'll sell insurance or I'll wash windows. Whatever the labor is, right? Mm -hmm. Slavery is mostly discussed in terms of restriction, things you can't do. And in a very juvenile, satisfactory way, slavery is portrayed as a miserable experience. In some fashions, you could say that spousal arrangements also enslave people because now you have a firm parameter enforced by legal documents, uh, your neighbors, your peers, and your church, most likely, if you go that you now are enslaved to the marriage and you must act like good spouses. And publicly you might, and privately that's your choice. But the idea is freedoms are restricted to you. And you might say something like, I'm sorry if this hits close to home, um, you didn't sign up for this, but now it's upon you. And it chafes you. So you could seek to escape it at great cost, as runaway slaves might be wont to do. You could embrace it and say, well, fuck, this is what I've got, but I'll make the most of it. You could neglect it and say, I will live within the limitations of what is uh, placed upon me, but I will thrive in whatever margins I can and do the bare minimum to maintain whatever is required of me as a slave. The, the whole work to you die thing is not just slavery. That is concentration in labor camps. That is, we need, we need these people to go away, but before they go, uh, I want to squeeze out the most labor hours I can before we throw them in the pit or whatever. So 
regrettably, because we're speaking in English, and the context is typically uh, local North American colonies and states' history of indentured labor. And then looking way across the oceans of what other cultures did in terms of slavery, it's a messy picture. And because we weren't around, we're not accounting for people being people and being far more clever than we give ourselves credit for and also stupider than we think we are. Slavery on its own is, an, is, a, is not a conversation that can occur without qualifications. You have to set certain parameters in place and remind people that just because you're a slave now, your intelligence score does not drop down to one. You're not an automaton. You're also not Django. So the reality has to be both more mundane and kinder. So like you say, when they say, oh, actually, the, uh, the, the, the Jews were uh, subcontractors or lead contractors. Maybe they had architects, masons, uh, that would direct other labor that we captured. Uh, take, the, take the Greeks or whoever we imported, because they're human capital, too. And they just said, well, good news. We recruited you. <laughs> we recruited you, farmer man, to be a laborer. So get on the boat, or we'll hit you with a stick. Not fatally. You still got to work. Ha ha. Get on the boat. I just want to open that up as a point of consideration. At the very least, to you, Nutchucks, uh, if not somebody else. It's not stuff you didn't know. It's just stuff that somebody might not have said before. No, I, I mean, I get it. I, I get what you're getting at. Don't get me wrong. And so I, when you go to tear down monuments, that's basically about as fruitful as saying, man, slavery bad, while you exist in a world that benefits from whatever the concept is you're trying to attack and are misterming. I would say there are... Those statues have a place... Um, I would say it would be in some type of museum and it just needs to state what that person did and what he did when he was alive so you know who they are and just do they need to be publicly funded by governments to praise somebody that like with a lot of the statues like Robert E. Lee um, he owned slaves Yep, that happened. That was that was the time. You got to look at the lens through that time. He uh, does. Is there does there need to be a statue for a city praising him? No. Does there need to be a school named after him? No. Uh, was he a great military person? What were his other accomplishments outside this conversation? Yeah. What were what were his what were his other things that he achieved why, outside? Why the fuck do you know his name? He's one of so many people. Why is that name significant? Because well, he, he owned slaves. What about the other slave owners? Do you know them? No. Well, then what else did the guy do? Oh, he's actually a brilliant military commander and the captain of his uh, junior high school baseball team. Little known fact. <laughs> if baseball was around back then, no, he was really into uh, socializing a whole lot. He, um, he, he was he was an engineering officer before he got his experience in the war with Mexico, uh, Mexican American War, um, and then he got into that, and then. He only reason he became on the side of the Confederates was because he uh, back then state pride was bigger than national pride. So you had more pride in your state than you did anything else. So uh, Abraham Lincoln offered him like, hey, you'll be a, a general in the uh, U.S. Army. And he's like, well, I don't know. The next day, Virginia succeeded. Richmond became the capital. And they said, we want you to be the commander in chief, essentially, like you'll be the head of the Confederate forces. Um so you're saying he got a better job offer. Essentially, and it, because it was his state, he went for it. It's, yeah. And, but did, what accomplishments did I, he I have? I think the, the tone you're conveying, it hits me differently. In the, in the people don't consider human motivation when they're, when they're reviewing history much of the time. 
And what you're telling me is, well, it just makes sense. And I think, yeah, well, of course it makes sense. But if that makes sense, then where does the sentiment of tear it all down come from? Because it it's like something occurred to you recently and you're angry at yourself for not thinking about it. So you got to go punch something. But instead of punch something, drag down a big, tall object so you don't feel as disempowered. I... My question is, one, if the object is destroyed, how does that exonerate anything? And two, if the object is destroyed and people keep happening, over time, how are they supposed to refer back to the object, engage an idea, and resolve it within themselves? They, they can't. Uh, don't get me wrong. I agree with you on that end. I'm not... I am just... How do I put this? I... I say publicly funded stats. It's not just because he owned slaves. Like it, it was open rebellion. You're technically considered uh, a, a rebel, a terrorist. I guess you could say he he is he is the Luke Skywalker of the uh, <laughs> Confederate uh, army. Uh, he's the most well known general. You had a bunch of generals. Don't get me wrong. Um, won a couple battles. Um, but tearing it down, I don't th like you said. It solves nothing. Tearing the statues down solves nothing. I would say if you move them into like a Civil War museum and speak about what they did in their life, and you can see it and learn and understand what they did, and they have owned slaves, and um, and what 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 the consequences were for him. He wasn't a big fan of slavery. He owned slaves, like I said. He inherited his father-in-law slaves when he passed. And here, here's the thing about what a lot of people don't understand about Robert E. Lee either. So do you, what's the National Cemetery for Military People? Arlington. You know who owned Arlington? I don't. Robert E. Lee. He owned Arlington. He owned... He, he, or so, he bought it at an auction. No, so Robert E. Lee, that was his wife's family's farm, and he built the farm, kept the slaves, and during the Civil War, right as Robert E. Lee succeeded to Virginia... Um, and said, well, he didn't succeed to Virginia. He was like, I'm going to go to Virginia. Um, and he started going to Richmond. Abraham Lincoln seized the property and said, it's ours. Like and chased his wife out. And his wife was a, uh, a refugee for the whole war <laughs> running around and trying to, you know, keep her, keep her ass afloat. Yeah. And that, yeah. there's a story there. And I'm curious about that story, but it won't fly because national sentiment is set in such a way that we don't pay attention to perspective or uh, consider context, it's a lot more important to be on board with upset and, and excited and, and eager to vote and give dollars and hours to causes that happily soak them up, put them in private coffers while saying, yeah, 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 slavery, bad. 200, 250, yeah, you know, no, 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 totally, just, just the worst. 500. Yeah, and that's how a lot of them are. Uh, I'm not a person... All of them. Uh, <laughs> All of them. It, it's an old gambit, and it keeps fucking working. You, you know, hey man, if no one, you know, if you keep pulling off the same trick, shame on, shame, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, fool me three times. Just you let it happen. Fool for, me anymore. You're not supposed to, but it's been happening for 250 years. Fool me, fool me eight times. One of my fucking Native Americans. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> that's David Cross, by the way. Um. Yeah, I, I'm not the person to ask him why people are so upset about it. Like, you see in the news, it's because, oh, we own slaves. They shouldn't be there. These are publicly funded parks. It offends me. Uh, that that today's age, anything could offend anybody. Shit, me just speaking can offend somebody. And I, I, I get that. Um, 
on that end that you know some people just say shit that nobody likes it doesn't mean you go tear down these things now do these statues like i said do there need to be schools named after these people no i that'd be like shit uh, let's think of a famous tra- that'd be like having there is guy fox day in england but that'd be like we're gonna rename the the local school in london guy fox elementary or guy fox grammar school fucker was a traitor why the hell do you have like, no because he like stuck it to the system man yeah i mean you don't do that uh, you but what if you had <laughs> what if you had the uh, the kanye west hall in a specifically art minded university or even the whole campus. Fuck it. Kanye West University. It's not his, but it's named after him. You might say, well, that's a name you recognize currently in this century. He hopes forever. But what's the significance? The idea, hypothetically, is footnotes. If a building is named after someone, that someone is a person of note for reasons. Go find out why. And then you can decide and discuss as to what that something is. Have things been renamed? Absolutely. Hey, you know, St. Petersburg wasn't St. Petersburg during the Soviet Union. Neither was Volgograd. But, again, you just, you fucking just just name it. Name it whatever represents the current. Like, keep a log. Keep the patch notes. Was and then discuss what happens. St. Petersburg became Leningrad, correct? Yeah. Okay, I just want to make sure. Yeah. Why would they call it Leningrad? Named it after Lenin. Oh, why does he matter? Because he overthrew the government in 1917. By himself. By himself. One oh, guy. Yeah. One guy. What a what a champ. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he pulled out... Iced. Pulled out his mythical sword of Stalin and Trotsky and, uh, you know, took over the government. You do enough cocaine with Marx to get ideas. <laughs> so, you know, dude, here's what I'm going to say. What I'm going to say is this is not the tone I wanted for this particular conversation. I don't regret it necessarily. I am happy that we got to discuss this. And I am, I want to support or at least focus on the point where things can be misconstrued and taken offensively and very reactionarily these days. but. My goal is you don't have to Hannibal Burris throughout every topic you go through, which if you understand the meme reference, that's why are you booing? I'm right. You can find nuance and talk tact in discussing things. And I have, I try through my communication. I'll, I'll make outlandish jokes and statements. and I'll typically talk about why I did what I did, but I want to have the most involving conversations that offer reflection and I want to encourage that through all the peers that I do discuss things with, because people have strong sentiments on partial understanding. I do the same. Everyone does this. And I pursue greatest context understanding so that by the end, I still might have my preference, but I'm open to discussing things instead of sticking by an absolute saying best shit ever or worst shit ever. No, I, I agree. And I, was, I wasn't expecting the topic to take that dark of a turn either. It wasn't that dark. Um, oh, I said genocide. Here we go. We we got into history stuff, and it, it happens to be a coincidence, man. But you know, I it's talked your, to somebody. Wheelhouse. Yeah, I'm happy you got to talk about it. Honestly, I just it, I I sometimes fear though when you go off on a train, you're just running quickly with the idea that you have, and your words don't follow in a sensible fashion. So the point you want to express gets lost in the minutia. I know this because I used to do this, and sometimes still do this. So, that's why I try and direct it in a way that an audience that doesn't get to see my body language or fully gets the context can still follow along with the excited trail of the Mamluks. <laughs> so the point I was trying to make is how do I word this? Let me word this in a way that I want to word it. No, Not, word it in a way I want you to word it. Well, yes, let me take it a correct way. 
just because some people deem something a certain way doesn't mean it's always that way. Like I said, I don't see what Israel did as genocide um, to the Palestines right now. But, you know, yes, he does. I don't. Um, is genocide bad? Yeah. Things that you do to people can be bad. It doesn't always mean it's the worst case scenario. Um, and they can be done better. You can all, but you need to learn from those experiences, understand them, and try to come to an understanding with the person you're having that disagreement with. And that's the biggest issue I think nowadays most people don't understand is that they want to try and just be like, I'm always right. I'm always there. No matter what I say, I'm correct. And that's not the case. Sometimes you just need to sit down and listen to somebody and just have a chat with them and understand their point of view. Um, with the statues thing, it was just because we're talking about, you know, famous people and why these statues need to come down in slavery. Uh, do I understand why a lot of people find them offensive? No. I mean, I find why some people find them offensive. Do they need to be in certain areas? No, but do there need to be statues that talk about things and say things so you can understand to have a better grasp of history and you can discuss and learn from those topics and not have one point of view from those topics that's just yours and understand multiple. Okay, good. Well said. I hope that worked. You, you, you did it. You did it. You, you did a couple of loop-de-loos, but you got the landing. Yes, promote intelligent or at least intelligible conversation that helps you get what's happening. You can still feel strongly, but you can park those feelings mid-talk and then bring them up later on if you want to. Yeah, that I, is good. I, I, I think that's the big problem with nowadays in culture, is that nobody's willing to sit down and talk with one another and understand the other side's perspective. And people just need to stop and do that sometimes and just be like, hey, you know what? I disagree with you, but let's find out why you think this way. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Daryl Davis. Not so much. Uh, he's the the black gentleman who has, in some way, shape, or form, helped can, not convert, but he got two hundred people out of the clan from high end ranking members to low end ranking members to give them their robes and stuff, and that's essentially how he did it. Like I just sat down and talked with these guys and found out and talked to them why they did it. Got invited to clan rallies, and I think that's the way we need to have people do things. Like if you disagree with each other, just sit down and talk. Yeah, you know, I, I keep messing shit up out there because I refuse to look inward because it's way scarier. So let me go ruin someone else's day so I don't try to better mine. All right. Well, let, let's get back on some gaming topics, sir. Uh, I want to get your opinion. This Grimecast brought to you by Pol Pot. <laughs> Depression. <laughs> Existential dread. <laughs> Shadowing shadow. Yeah, we got on this because we're talking about Darkest Dungeon. That, that, speaking of Darkest Dungeons, we went straight down to the Darkest Dungeon on that end. <laughs> and we were not prepared. Not at all. Did you know, I have this photo staring at me for the last uh, conversation we had. Did you know that Dana Carvey was in Blue Thunder? The heck is Blue Thunder? It's a helicopter movie. <laughs> I shit you not, it, it's a high-tech helicopter action movie. Because the future of law enforcement is a converted Cobra attack chopper. Look it up. I think there's a lot to like there. And on top of that, there's Dana Carvey with hair. It says Roy Schneider. I, for a second, there was like Rob Schneider was in an action crime movie. And I'm like, oh, wait, no, it says Roy Schneider. All right, hold on. I'm looking it up. It's a TV series. I'm, I'm confident it was a TV series. I think I have I actually dragged down a Blu-ray of this fucking thing. I saw it as a kid on VHS and I... I liked it because helicopters are cool, but I couldn't understand why I was watching what I was watching. 
Uh, um, got. Let's see here. Oh, Roy Schneider. Oh, Roy Schneider's the guy from Jaws. Didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's the sheriff. He has, he has a strong nose. Malcolm McDonald was in it. Oh, it's Schneider, not Schneider. I'm sorry. Excuse I me. Schneider. Saying things correctly. Holy I'm sorry. Fuck. A Dang. young Ben Affleck. Anyway. Before we get to other gaming things, I wanted to ask you if mm -hmm. within gaming you've seen banners for something called Scarlet Nexus appear last month or so. I've heard of it. I have not looked at it, but let me take a look. I find it very interesting that the promotional image is fairly specific. It is figures in cloaks and hoodies with glowing red eyes. Anything beyond that, once you see any other screenshots or video, it quickly dissolves into post-modern urban anime weeb trash that looks gorgeous because of visual effects and style and artistic direction. I have a difficult time with that because the images and the attacks that I'm seeing look good, but the promotional material makes no sense, and I have negative confidence in the storytelling ability of whatever this is. It's done by Bandai because... Namco, so I'm not confident in it all either. Well, no, no, no. I mean, I, I enjoy some of their products quite a bit. I love me some Tekken. I love me the Gundam games. I enjoy the Warriors games. Bandai Namco does good stuff in terms of publishing. But just the idea that, like, this, is, this could be a perfectly fine action game. But if your entire interior aesthetic is the dance between mundane gray backgrounds and ultra-colorful, stylized protagonists with their flashy energy attacks, why the faceless hoodie silhouettes? And I don't care that, oh, well, you see, when the character activates their powers, they take off their hood, and, and, and the metaphor for their individualized spirit creates a power... I don't give a fuck, okay? I, I've watched enough anime. I understand. I get it. But if this is your forward-facing foot, why is this what you lead with? Also, is this just a colorful ripoff of Nier Automata? I don't know, but I'm watching the little uh, trailer they have on the Bandai, Bandai Namco website, and it doesn't pique my interest. Like you said, it, it, it shouts anime. I, I think I would watch something like this. But oh, know... you'd love the fuck out of it. You watched all of Black Clover. This is right up your alley. Hey, I watched 80-something episodes. I'm only like 40 episodes short. You're right. You're right. Point being... If you just want to watch pretty things happen on screen, that can work. I have become very sensitive to time being wasted with terrible dialogue and direction. Very sensitive. It upsets me, especially when a part of the setup is quite good, and then it's wasted. So colorful action scenes strung together along. Maybe the point. Maybe it's that I've exited the target audience window. If you're 14 to 27, this is your shit. Don't think about it too hard. Marvel the characters. But even in that window, if you've watched 50 shows of the same style, you probably develop a preference for the things you like, the things you don't, what works, what doesn't, etc. You just can't swallow it whole anymore. It can't be your launching off point. And then even if it is, that becomes... These insufferable assholes like me come out of the woodwork and say, oh, do you like Thing X? Oh, well, Thing Y did this way better like 15 years before your time. Well, can I, can I enjoy the thing that I'm watching, please? Can I arrive there at a time in the future? Let me just enjoy this Scarlet Nexus and whatever. Then we can talk about 
a predecessor or a, a peer that executed this premise better. For now, I just like the cool hairstyles. Like the protagonist has got this little crimson streak in his hair. It's very fetching. It looks good. Um, please. <laughs> I just like pretty boys. You know, leave it alone. Sorry. So, yeah, we arrived at you don't think this is for you? And I don't disagree. It was just kind of bizarre that the words appeared out of nowhere, and there was some buzz about the game, and apparently it's very positive on Steam. But watching this, while I appreciate the visual style of what I'm seeing, I don't feel the need to participate anytime soon. No, I, I don't plan on buying that. Like I said, the only games that I'm kind of psyched for right now are uh, Age of Empires, Total War 3, and Psychonauts 2. Which, Psychonauts 2, by reputation of early footage being played, segments being played, is positive. People like it. Uh, I, I'm aware of Tim Schafer. I'm aware of the humor. I remember not enjoying playing the early hours of Psychonauts 1, but much of that was the combination of the mechanics, the visuals, and the, the visuals being like style selection and the pace of things. They didn't click with me enough that I wanted to keep playing. I wasn't having fun. I understand that there are great zany things that occur, and I was of the age to appreciate those things, but it didn't draw me in enough to continue. Here, let's think. About 20 years later, uh, you can possibly execute on this premise in a fashion that is even more accessible. It looks better. It handles better. Because Double Fine were not practiced at making games good. Uh, at the time, or ever, really. I think Double Fine made good playing games for their entire span. But the writing's been satisfying. Since, you know, Brutal Legends is a game I really enjoy, but I concede, parts of it are fun to play. And a lot of it is fun to listen to. And they got a few super killer moments when it comes to playing with being aware of rock and metal and character drama. But I can't give a firm recommendation no matter what the context is. It has to be, oh, are you super into this stuff? Okay, well, prepare to enjoy about half. Check it out. Was Grim Fandango double fine? I thought he was still at uh, LucasArts when he... Did oh, that was LucasArts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because Tim Schafer was there, but and he was the lead director, art director, I believe, or the lead director on the game. I can't remember 100%. Same with the Day of the Tentacle. That's LucasArts. If you want to just name off their catalog, yeah, yeah that's, that's, well, that's true. You didn't say uh, Full Throttle yet. No, no, that's on there. Full throttle, full, full, full throttle, throttle. Excuse me. Uh, I don't know what rad is. Uh, Iron Brigade, never heard of it. Massive Chalice, didn't like that game. Kind of boring, real slow. Um, it's weird, like you have to conquer spaces, and uh, I never quite got it. Uh, one game I did buy theirs was the Quest, Sesame Street, Once Upon a Monster. Excuse me, and I bought that for my oldest daughter. She never played it because it was on the Connect, and she couldn't. Didn't register her body. I guess she was too short. <laughs> it's like me being recently at the uh, the Gunpla shop at the local mall, and a kid ran in, and the door jingle didn't go off. Then the kid ran out, and the jingle didn't go off. And we tested the door, and the jingle went off. I said, oh, it must not have been a real person. <laughs> the kid was an illusion. <laughs> Christian Bale, Empire of the Sun, 1987. He is a kid. Yeah, he yeah, no. uh, he also did Newsies. If you know what Newsies is, I don't know what Newsies is. Uh, Newsies is, I believe, based off the um, 
Newsies were kids back in the 20s and 30s, early 1900s that sold newspapers, and is a Tony Award-winning uh, Broadway play that they turned into a movie, and he started in the 90, 91, 91, 92? Now, let me look it up. Uh, we'll get you a better... Newsies, 1992. Christian so, Bale, lead actor. Robert Newell was in it. Since we're doing both topics, and I like them both, and I want to keep ranting because, you know, fuck the audience. This will go on as long as it has to. Uh, <laughs> would you like me to speak more about the game side of things or the film side of things? That's up to you, sir. I'll, I'll, let, I'll, I'll let you go in there because we can... It, alternating back and forth is, is not a big issue to me or sticking with one topic for a while and then switching back. I, I don't mind. You know, the, the absence of content means that the next episode that comes out has to be uh, the Titanic of episodes. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I've voiced this to you yet, I don't think, but I, I was completely unprepared for how angry I would be at the Final Fantasy VII remake. You're the first person to say that, now I'm curious. I know that it opened strong, because it gave you, see, see, the stuff you remember, but Super HD. Yeah, the city is well rendered, the lighting is fantastic, the combat is take it or leave it, but it looks good. And there's a constant sense of progression. Look in the corners, find the chests, find, find, find. And I started getting these misgivings right about two hours in. Why is everyone super adulating of Cloud? Because we're spending more time with these characters as they're addressing one another with high production, high gloss models. The camera angles all work. The lighting is intense. And everyone's super horny for him, even the people who don't like him. And then you get your first hub area where they throw in side quests for, so that the, the, the game can happen. Uh, and I just get this really weird, scratching, familiar feeling in my mind. Uh, and, and it feels like my time is being wasted, but I still feel good about completing the quest. Maybe it leads somewhere. And characters get introduced for 15 seconds and they go away and then the game continues on. But then things get sidetracked, and there's another hub area, and this is where the mini games happen because you have all the doodads I'm about to play with, and I just it finally sinks in. The reason I'm not having fun is because the characters have badly written dialogue for me, because it's indulgent, it speaks in catchphrases, it is I I understand that it's translations and localizations of Japanese rhythms, which could be for a shonen series where the characters have to as was recently discussed, have to use Aizuchi, which is the like active listening with to say things back. Not as bad as Metal Gear, but it's there. But nothing of substance is happening, and people are not behaving like human beings, but instead as like these really obtuse character tropes. And then it hits me. This fucking game that has been in nightmare production hell for 10 plus years and got put together the last few years, this is a watered-down Yakuza experience. Having played the Yakuza games, I cannot enjoy this the way it's meant to be enjoyed because people are praising this fucking thing even though you're running down a hallway most of the time, the same way you did in 13 and 15. People forget that part. But they love it because they love the property this belongs to. And this is the opening act to however many games happen. And I'm not mad about the story changing. I don't mind that part. What I do mind is that the reminders of, ooh, foreboding happen virtually every 10 minutes when it's time for the action as opposed to meandering about saying, are you ready to move on? Are you ready? And aside from how detailed the character individual models are and how flashy the attacks are, 
the environments and the other characters around the main party are highly inconsistent, where you have a super glossy Midgar street at night, and then you look around where the, 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 the vista of what you see in composition, such as you're down below underneath Midgar, the big city, and you look up and you see the vast mechanical plates that create the, uh, the disc tray of the city, pizza slices, if you will. I mean, that, that's majestic, except that it's a lower-resolution flat image that kind of distracts from the events. And then the assets around you, like, it's supposed to be a dirty shithole town, but it looks too much like a generic dirty shithole town, and the environments aren't fun to be in. But at the same time, in the Yakuza games, you have dirty shithole places that, because they're based on real-life locations that are well-executed, it's kind of a pleasure to sort of peek around the corners and see what's there. And the density of things to discover, aside from chests and lootables, are way higher. So the game design rewards lingering in these areas versus you can see there's four quest slots. If you just go in the right place, it will trigger a cutscene. You see a guy, find my cats, and you go to find the cats. But it just felt so poorly paced, watered down, underwhelming. And the camera irritatingly got in people's faces, and then it panned away, and then it whooshed about like it had no confidence in presenting any sweeping shots or standing still with constant pandering. So this concept was just not for me, I don't think. I understand what the game is, actually. It's an action-adventure, quasi-Kingdom Hearts style, following the party around as they're pursuing their missions. But anytime anyone stops to talk, the Kingdom Hearts really ratchets up where they're talking nonsense, tropes, or exposition, and conveying heavy, horny feels. And this moment really caught me, and it's going to upset people, because you know it's popular right now to defend certain parties without thinking about anything. You know about the uh, sneaking into Don Corneo's mansion thing? You talking about in Godfather? Where he cuts the horse's head off? <laughs> no, not Corleone. Corneo. No. Uh, at one point in the story, the party gets separated. Tifa gets captured by an underground mob. Stir. And it's heavily implied she's going to be sold into the sex trade circuit. Uh, enslaved, without her consent. So the party of Cloud and Aerith have to go find her. But to infiltrate the Don's... Uh, the Don's mansion, instead of using brute force, because you have been doing that throughout, seems to work for you. A man with a big sword, you have to sneak in. This is a covert operation. So in the original game, you have to find multiple pieces to craft an outfit to dress up Cloud as a woman, uh, to fool the guards, to sneak in as two girls, and then kind of a teehee, oh, which one am I going to bang tonight? Well, these three ladies. I picked the blonde. Oh, the blonde's a dude! And if you're being progressive, you would have said, fuck it, I'm game. I'll play with that joystick, why not? <laughs> and then combat would begin, the, the plot is revealed, and the party gets to interrogate the Don. Instead, because of a higher budget and more time to spend staring at these characters, I recommend you look this up. Uh, Cloud has to prove that he's got what it takes to get approval to get inside the Don's mansion, which requires the approval of three characters. One is a cutscene and nothing happens. Two is the combat arena owner, so you have to go through combat matches because the game is a combat game, so here you go, prove yourself. I got so fucking mad, Nutchucks. I got so fucking mad in that arena because the first opponent that put you under, like the Underground Coliseum in Yakuza, which happens in almost every single Yakuza, so they're really hoping you to know this other franchise exists. The first opponent you fight is called Beastmaster. And it's a black dude with two dogs, and the black dude has an eye patch and a knife. You, you can't get closer to Goro Majima unless the dogs were leopards. Like, haha, 
guess where we got this idea? I got very upset. Um, it was late and I was drinking, but I got very upset. On top of this, after you've proved yourself in the combat, you have to go to the third uh, underground market holder, who is portrayed to be a liberated man who wears tights. He is muscular, but he is lithe. He uses effeminate gestures, but he's very confident in the style. So it's all about, hey, you know, gender is just a, just, a, just a choice. You can just do whatever. He's not androgynous. He's clearly a guy, but he's doing this thing. And he says, Cloud, you and I have to do a dance routine. We have to have a dance-off. That way, if you impress me, then we can, we can do business. I'll, I'll be able to help you. So there, there's a practice dance sequence, and there is the actual trial dance sequence. And it's a rhythm game. You have to press the face buttons in accordance to the rhythm of the song. The problem is the camera in this game just it, it ate too many pixie sticks, and it can't stand still. So the camera will pan around, showing off quick cuts of choreography, music video style of what your character is doing. But then the input prompts are also physical objects in the world floating with colored gates and orbiting orbs. And when the orb approaches the gate, you have a brief window to press the button. But they're not fixed on the screen. They're drifting around the dancing. Which, if it's your first time playing, unless you're reloading to practice or whatever, it's actually quite difficult to gauge the timing initially because you think to yourself, oh, I know the rhythm. I should probably press this button at this point. But the camera cuts away that you can't see where the upcoming gate is and cuts back at a different point, it's just a clusterfuck. So fine, you suffer through that, or enjoy it, if you really enjoy it. And the reward for this is, now that you've shown me that you've got the moods, because you, you, you still got like this firm expression in your face, but you're moving so elegantly, like a true dancer, now we get to have a big makeover for you on the stage. And they tease his hair, and they draw makeup on his face, and they dress him in this well-fitted dress, and everyone says, oh my god, you look fabulous. This is amazing. I will remind you, the character never <laughs> was never asked for consent to have this happen, which is an important piece of this conversation. But they force it on him and say, look at that. You can be beautiful no matter what. And there's supposed to be this moment of, yeah, I feel liberated. So you take a slow stroll down the town to the mansion with everyone leering like, oh my god, that, that, that chick is hot. Uh, and you get there. And they march you through, and they bring out Tifa, who is now wearing a negligee, basically. And there's three attractive ladies, one of whom is Cloud, the guy. And the Don, of course, goes, oh, I'll pick this one. But then when it's revealed it's a dude, he's disgusted. Ah, it's a dude! And then the three people each take turns saying, tell me what I need to know, or I'll do something bad to your balls. My balls! And this happens three times. So, it's played for a cartoon in the resolution. But in the middle, it's meant to be a statement, I think, because they spend a lavish amount of time rendering what you can do when you take a burly guy who's reversed his biceps and triceps to the front of his arms are very long and strong, but the backs are tiny. Like, yeah, you're not just a uh, black swordsman with amazing hair. You can be a very attractive lady, too. That's for you to decide what to do with. It's this really confused message, but it's meant to be sort of gender stereotypes don't belong here, right? That's kind of the tone of the conversation. But then about an hour and a half later, you're in the sewers, and there's a specific cutscene that's meant to be like a, a hazard highlight, where the girls, Tifa and Aerith, are going to cross a narrow bridge. And just before they say, what are we going to do when this adventure's over? I don't know. I guess I'll take you shopping topside. You're right, a shopping trip for clothes and things is exactly the most fun. Cloud can carry the bags. 
And something kind of broke inside me at that point. I realized that none of this fucking shit matters at all. Because if you're going to give a moment of acknowledgement for a greater conversation of the LGBTQ community and gender stereotypes and roles, which is a conversation absolutely worth having, but if you're going to give us a peek at that with a highly stylized celebration of color and, and dance and motion and all that and say you can be whatever you want to be, and then resort back to the girls are going to go shopping, the dude's holding the bags, isn't that resetting the entire thing? Isn't that going back to tropes? What do you think, Chucks? No, it is. It, it totally is going back to tropes on that end. It's it's. Uh, there are multiple writers on this project, and it shows, and it's tone deaf and confusing and mixed, so that I basically couldn't wait for this fucking thing to be over. I didn't put it away. I finished this episode, and I have to say that in the same token of conversation, the fans were upset that Tifa's bust size was not as preposterously large as it was before, like Dead or Alive style in the fighting games. No, 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 no. It's toned down as she's wearing a sports bra because we are here to uh, take the gaze away, like the male gaze. Like, the, don't don't leer too much. We're here to focus on other things and femininity and, and, and empowerment and all that. Then there's a section in the lobby of the Shinra building, which is the big headquarters trying to fight your way into to go up the stairs where uh, there's a new obstruction. There's a force field. And we can't get past the force field. And there's, We need a key card. But that's inside the guardsman's booth. That's um, difficult to get to. What are we going to do? We've got a giant, burly brown guy who is an eco-terrorist, but he's got a heart of gold, so it's okay. He's got a gun for a hand. We've got the blonde swordsman, who is really good at sorting things uh, and acrobatics, but not much else. We've got Tifa, who is the heart and soul of the team. She cares about everyone, and she's always the level-headed one, um, who punches and kicks and has uh, difficulty containing her, her, her memories, despite the suspenders and sports bra. So she says, I know. I'll do acrobatics and walk along these, um, these suspended lights and drop into the guard booth. Except, oh, whoopsie-doodle, I fell down. I guess I have to climb up these objects. And then I have to navigate a series of uh, hand-over-hand, like, suspended monkey ladders. So my feet are dangling, and I'm just, I'm just traversing this hand-by-hand hand over the top. Did I mention that at this point, the camera is highly pivotable, and her hands are up with her pits exposed and her chest there? It's not explicit, but I just have a feeling that they can try to say, how can we get time to let the player move the camera any which way to ogle Tifa? And again, I'm talking 15 to 45. If you're into that thing, you're into that thing. But I thought to myself, you're not saying it out loud. You're not giving us like an upskirt shot. But there's nothing stopping you from taking a look if you want to or panning it about. And she moves ever so slowly. And this never happens in the game before or after. This is the one time when the camera is centered on your, quote, hot character. What are we doing? You can't have all the pieces at the same time. Otherwise, if, if everything's at stake... Nothing's at stake, right? There's no emphasis here. Fucking hated it. I hate the writing in this game. It looks good. That's about all I can give it. And that's not a popular sentiment. No, no, it's not. You're the first person to say, I didn't like it, but I was never the biggest fan of uh, Final Fantasy. I enjoyed 6. That was about it. That's a good one. It's I mean, in terms of how often do you get a story where just past the halfway mark, the bad guy wins and the story is not over. You have to then continue in the consequence of the bad guy winning. 
Oh, and not all of your characters make it. Like, depending on what you do, the consequences are dire, and you get to decide, do I stop playing here, or do I see where this goes? Unless, of course, you don't remember that part. No, you always got to keep... In any game, you want to see where it goes, unless it did what it did to you and pisses you off. Mm -hmm. When the game has no confidence in its own writing, if it's a sequence of levels uh, strung together by just reasons... You're not obligated to complete it, but if the story catches you, you think to yourself, okay, Rider Man, I will endure as many random battles as it takes to get to the end of your story. And then hopefully it's not a it's not a, a cliffhanger. Come back for part two where I finish this. Here, buy this DLC. It's all in the back end. Oh, no. So it's difficult to separate the love for the property to the execution. But once I realized I was playing a watered-down Yakuza game from 2015, I had a very hard time appreciating anything else. Because this title, the remake, features, I think, two highway sequences. When you're on your bike, drifting lane to lane, sword-swapping enemies chasing a truck. Which is, again, Seven had a lot of minigames. I remember this part, and that's why the translation's here where you have minigames. But I just think back to the preposterous... It's not nearly as preposterous as, okay, the three gangsters piled into a car and are driving from one part of town to the other part of town on a highway, and then this fleet of competing mobster cars are approaching them, and the driver says, Kiryu, have a gun! And just throws it in the backseat, like, you know what to do! And the character who basically doesn't uh, kill or shoot people, hypothetically, that we know of, leans out of the door and has infinite ammo to time crisis, shoot the wheels, engines, and people out of vehicles to deplete health bars. And then a helicopter shows up and you beat it with a handgun. Like, I know it's bullshit, but it's it's fun. It's elevated by this ridiculousness of what occurs here. And the memes happen. What about those people he shot? Oh, no, those are all paid actors. He didn't kill anyone. Rubber bullets, rubber explosions. It's cool. It's played with a different tone than whatever's happening here. Darkest Dungeon is a godsend by comparison. There you go. There's your takeaway. Uh, although something, Chucks, you might appreciate more. Uh, <laughs> I am more impressed with the writing of One Piece Warriors 4 than I am with Final Fantasy VII Remake. Really? One Piece Warriors 4 is a good one. Uh, I don't know these characters. I don't know the story. I think that this arc with Big Mama is maybe one of the newer things that has happened in the anime or manga in some time. I don't know because I don't read it or follow it. But in terms of sheer gameplay with the roster and such, this is a good, this was a good warrior's time, I will say. And the conceit of leveling characters in a shared pool as well as individually means that the grind is lessened, if you care about that. So seeing people that show up occasionally, like Buggy, Buggy's back. And I played him before in the third game in a different story arc. I enjoyed him okay. I enjoy him more here because you have the the warriors formula has iterated sufficiently where the move variety by visual and by control are they're smoother. It's a pleasure to see, it's a pleasure to do, and you only have a bad time if you're playing at a higher difficulty where animation timing is everything. But whether you're picking your favorite character based on the character from the show or the manga that you like, or whether you are picking your favorite character based on the moveset that they possess, you're probably going to have a decent time. Your only real point of repulsion is either A, I don't want to be clearing out these stages, even though the, the knockout counter goes into the thousands pretty handily. Or B, you don't like the way it looks. Personally, I was not a fan of Everything is Made of Desserts Island. 
So when I get to go through the arc where uh, Luffy discovers fourth gear, the Snakerer, I'm not super invested, but I still want to see how it plays out. Also, I don't... Chucks, we got to talk about Rebecca. What the fuck is happening with Rebecca? What do you mean, Rebecca? Uh, well, we have Nami, and we have Nico Robin, mm-hmm. and we have Bo Hon- Hancock, and we have others. Uh, there's a very specific aesthetic that these characters share. Like, Frankie is a monster. We get that. He, he is a freakish hybrid of unbelievable muscle and pirate technology. Fine. Cool. Chopper's kind of weird. Luffy's stretchy. Um, Zoro is sword saint, but he looks like a human being. The female cast have noticeable features. Cool. Fine. Okay. This is what the artist wants to portray. Women come in one shape, basically. The attractive ones do. But Rebecca is apparently, what, the, the, the armor princess of an island? She's not a playable character, but she features a one-story arc. I'm not sure. I haven't watched enough One Piece recently. Really? Okay, so so the, what I'm getting at is uh, she's wearing a, a teal cape. She has pink hair. She's wearing a helmet and gloves and then the anime interpretation of a chainmail bikini. But on its own, while that's not necessarily a problem for me, I, I rather enjoy that kind of thing, it is kind of creepy considering the chainmail bikini is rendered on a 3D model versus a manga page or an animu, and just having volume of... Um, how do I say this correctly? You remember our conversation about American advertising, how uh, cleavage good, nipple bad? Yes. There's no nipple here. There's an alarming amount of tissue showing, sticking way out there. Oh, I, can, no I, I got the images up. But there's no nipple here. So just... It was weird that you sort of got used to, okay, Nami and Robin and Hancock look like this. That's fine. It's whatever. We were all young once, and um, that we just would think people look like that. But with a side character, it's extra distracting. And once again, there's a little, oh, thank you, Luffy. I hope we bone someday. And he goes, I got to find the One Piece in the Grand Line. Okay, well, bye. Come back, Osbando. <laughs> Outside of little things like that, I just, uh, I don't know. One, it one... seemed goofy. One Piece to me went off the deep ends of uh, about right after the the Great Pirate Wars. Sure, and it has the the permission to do so. It's just some things you don't expect. Anyway, uh, what else have we been done in gaming that has been interesting? Uh, interesting. I've had a, I've had a golden year. I mean, between starting off with Witcher three and then ending up with the end of uh, ending up with Disco, and in between it was things like Nier Automata, the Yakuza series. Uh, Fuck me sideways. Good enough that it's all kind of a blur, and uh, and gave really good ideas and storytelling. It's it, it's an improbable. It was a golden year of games participation. I would have to uh, uh, look at the trophy list to show exactly where I put my time in various ways, but that means that there has been an improbable level established of writing uh, demand or expectation, where most things that I touch are going to be found wanting in that regard. So, to compensate, we're going other places where writing matters way less than the mechanics do. So, uh, I started putting in some more hours into uh, Disgaea 1 Complete. And Disgaea is a series that is zany and wacky and fun, and occasionally touching. But you're there to grind numbers. 
I would just say that I remember this game being released on PS2, and I remember what it looked like, and all the games from NAS America looked like at that point in time. And I know Disgaea 6, we saw, is going to 3D models, so it is abandoning its long-running tradition of using sprites, which is okay. That's a lot to do. But coming back to the game that I know, based on story and the, the, the absence of mechanics, because you had to come from somewhere, even just the fact that wiping out in a dungeon is a game over and you go back to the main hub is an improvement over the original, which just said, game over. I don't know when you saved last, but fuck you. Little, little life improvements. Seeing, having the memories of the fuzzy sprites and seeing the lavish work being portrayed here is uh, quite satisfying. Although the in-between story mode episode chapters still have the background slides of the old sprites. So if you're ever in doubt, saying, man, these graphics kind of suck, buddy, you don't know how far we came. Take a look at that background. Do you, do, you, do you know what that is? No? Neither do I. That's how bad it was. So that's the, that's the gaming side of things. As well as, I don't know if you'll believe this or not, uh, I got my wife to start playing disco. Really? Really? It's not, it wasn't a difficult matter. I didn't say, but please! It was, at one point a conversation began where I said, I'm sorry that I, while I was in the middle of my runs, I would spout off a lot of memes and things, and you were a bystander, so you have no way of participating firsthand with this. This is all like, okay, yeah, I get you're excited. Thank you so much. That's that's enough. I said, you should try. And then I, I would love to see what happens, because this is not a mechanically challenging game. This is a decision game, and a reading game, and a context game. And she took to it to such a degree that she can only do it about two hours at a time because she really dives in and things get fuzzy. Her head fills up, so she has to take a break. And that's about perfect, really, for her. To the point where we have our movie night and there's the unspoken subtext. We could watch a movie or I could play disco and you could watch me do that. <laughs> so I find, I find that to be an interesting development. Like it's about the same time spent, but the difference is if she watches, if we're doing a, let's call it a private let's play, if I'm playing and she's watching, she's not engaged, so her brain kind of makes her start yawning and get sleepy. Because her she's not making decisions, her hands aren't moving. If the story is gripping, she'll be there for it. But if she's watching a game, a part of her goes, yeah, this is lame shit that I don't care about. Irrespective of what's happening rationally or in front of her, it's just her brain says, this doesn't matter, so it's time for you to go to sleep. But when she's, uh, when she's playing disco, she's all in. And she even did something I didn't know was possible, which is terrific. We'll talk about it later. Uh, about the only... The, the two issues I have is, one, she's all in, so she's not discussing anything verbally with what's happening. She's playing. I'm just along there for the ride to watch the choices she makes and watch her face when things happen. Uh, the other thing she does that I don't like, but I'm not going to correct, is she reads ahead, so she cuts off the voice acting. <laughs> or Lenvold's in the middle of saying whatever he's saying, just, nope, next line, next line, next line. And I thought, oh, fuck, okay. Well, it's fine. It's worth it for the experience. And she, she did advise that she wanted to have it as natural of an experience as possible with the least amount of direction. And she got through over about four sessions. She's mostly done with day one. <clears throat> and she got to a point where it's too late to talk to anybody else. So I started saying, you should do this next, then this next, then this next. 
And she started to feel, because it was a longer run, she did almost four hours, it was very impressive, but she was like sleepy done by the end. She said, I didn't super appreciate that you were starting to railroad me to what to do. And I said, I understand, and I'm only doing that because there are some things that you will lose in day one. And the number of things available for you to do was getting shorter and shorter because you've seen a bunch of stuff now. And I didn't want you to lose time wandering back and forth or moreover missing out on stuff, which is not a crime. You can do that. Some runs of the game actually prioritize you to do as little as possible for as long as you can and then do things later on. But in terms of optimal or at least well-developed initial experience, I felt it was in our best interests to achieve certain things early, especially like what you and I saw talking to Joyce and the Pale Rider Joyce is a long conversation. Joyce is a big old info dump tree, and she, unlike yourself, she doesn't do well with maps and dates and names. But the conceptual things that are happening in this universe, in this setting, the really juicy ones that throw in some existential horror, that stuff is worth getting to. So I said, you should probably keep talking to her. She says, I don't want to. I said, but you're stepping, you're stopping so close to the good bit. So we're having a good time as a, as a spousal couple. Uh, perusing a super dense playable book in a co-op fashion where I'm trying to be uh, the least amount of backseat driver I can. I told her, yeah, when day two starts, it's on you. you. You do what you want to do. And then towards the end of the day, again, if there's something that you're on the cusp of getting but didn't get to, I'll direct you. But other than that, this is, this is your detective. That's kind of how we did it the whole time when we were playing. Like, hey, you might want to go do this for a second. You might, you might want to go take care of this, because I almost skipped a bunch of stuff. A you, couple times. You, you did. You did. It was just... I have to temper respecting your decision to just leave things on the table. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't feel like asking that. Which is fair. Which is fine. You can do that, but you are actively denying yourself the experience of participating in the writing. If that's what you want, it will hurt my insides, but you can do what you like. However, if we reach an accord, you should look at this because you don't know what you're missing, especially when it comes to expectations of other games where you're facing a dialogue tree and the detective has the option to say something very simple, stupid, easy to understand, and you think, oh, well, whatever, you're just going to like re-ask a thing. There's no point. And I have to prevent myself from shrieking, you don't know what's going to happen when you say something obvious. You, you don't know. Have you been paying attention to the writing of this game? It pays attention and keeps track in ways that would utterly surprise you. And the little tidbits are so reactive that it's worth it. If you say, well, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. For role-playing purposes, I just wouldn't participate. Okay. I want to prevent the feeling of you going through this experience, getting to the end, and suddenly feeling the gun pu gut punch of, oh fuck, how much did I miss? Because you probably aren't going back in right away or ever. Kind of like in Near Automata when, I, I forget who, but they told me like, yeah, I, I got to the first ending and stopped. <laughs> I didn't have liquid in my mouth. I couldn't do a spit take, but I asked, why did you stop? Well, I just didn't feel like playing the same thing again. Yeah, what I understand that sentiment, but holy shit, you played a quarter of the experience. Say, so yeah, near Automata, you uh, you have what, like nine or ten innings? You have okay. 
spoiler free, you have two sides of the first half of the game. So ending one, ending two. That unlocks the second half of the game, which is a joint experience with a decision at the end, which gives you actual ending one and actual ending two, or three and four, depending how you see it. And if you satisfy ending three and four, both, which could just be going back to the choice, you get to see ending five, possibly the forever ending. Oh, shoot. It chucks. Motherfucker. I mean, if, if if ever you should, if ever you should do a playthrough of that, I would also be very on board because, because <sighs> we will continue with Disco and it's going to destroy a lot of your preconceived notions, I think, in terms of what to expect. So that the language of what uh, Mr. Taro is portraying in his games, it's a lot more explicit because anime is louder. It's not about Say, using many words deftly to articulate a point, it's more about using fewer words that are more emotionally charged to address something louder. But the echo, the gap in between, is what gives you reflection to agree, disagree, accept, rebel, etc. But it still goes places. And maybe it's just me, but it makes me feel things. But uh, you are much more used to American... Uh, media, comic-wise. Not that you read comics explicitly, but the, the pace of storytelling is such that you'll be more reactive to that. Which is exactly why Disco is so difficult for many people is because it, it is plotting. It is slow. It is dense. Nobody throws a punch. Except for maybe you at that kid in the backyard. So, oh, people tune out. Don't just forget, go, uh, what's his name? Uh, not Motorhead. What the hell was his name? Measurehead? Measurehead. Thank you. God dang it. Oh, no. That... That was that was a fucking spin kick, dude. That was that was. I different. threw a punch first. Remember, that was my first. You choice. did, you did, and you you <laughs> you fell into it. Oh, well, you listened to one of your impressions, and it said, "Oh yeah, you should do that." Even the guy down below on deck says, "You should like sock him in the in the face, do quick punches." However, partly because the writer wanted it to be, partly because it's the last thing you would have expected, if you go for the flare option, that ends up being the element that gives you the edge. Nobody saw that coming, including you. And that won you the victory. It did. So I, I, I really fucking dig narrative tricks that work this way. Do you, I, have, a, do you have a point? Go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to say, I, I've enjoyed Disco so far. I'm, I'm waiting to see what it does in the story and evolves it to get what, what the ending's going to be like. Finding out about that you're just essentially a floating rock through space. Not like Earth, but you're just like a, a chunk of land, and you're it's a very small amount of land. And if you go into this void, that you know you may have these trippy experiences. And what <laughs> that is that is a way of putting that trippy and, experiences. And what could happen with that, and what our detective finds out, and if he ever gets his gun back. I think you address a point perfectly here. The story is parallel stories in scale. It, Almost like things are orbiting another. The it, detective's present predicament, his past predicament, the predicament of his office and constabulary, the predicament of his partner, the predicament of this town, the predicament of the shipping industry based on the union's strike, and of course, if you want to get super fucky, the predicament of the Isulas themselves, the nature of this world beyond concerned common reality. Because people just be living. 
because they don't want to or can't understand what's happening around them, beyond the line of sight. So yeah, all them stories are spinning, but you're just a detective. And you find out whatever occurs to you, and you get to kind of decide how much of that there is. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm excited for you. I'm excited for her. I'm excited for everybody who touches this fucking game. Because it's... If you put it down, like, after hour one, it's because the format is... Uh, not compl- it just it can't. It's incompatible with your ability to understand a story. It's too slow. It's too wordy. Too out there. I understand. You have the right to. But if it engages you a little bit and you walk away, you are doing yourself a disservice. Because how often do you get to spend time in a stew of feelings and ideas and perspectives? So let me, let me ask you this. We, we've been doing Disco, what is it, going on a month and a half now? Off and on, yeah. Yeah, off and on. What What is... To, because you can't go from a game like this to something else. What would be what 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 do you see as our next adventure after Disco? Why Borderlands? Something where writing matters. Fuck all. <laughs> uh, okay, if it's a if it's an individual project, uh, I mean we'll be talking about it. We can do the Dead Space three run uh, because I'll... that's somewhere where the writing has aspirations of being insightful, but stumbles often. That that's that's kind of what I was getting at. What what direction are we taking from here? Because this is a super deep game, and like, how do you go from a super deep game to something else? Like, oh man, are they gonna? I, I want to give the fans or fan uh, <laughs> uh, the the idea of what we have in store next. Because I'm not sure how long. I don't know how much more we got in the game. I think you said the game's a week long, and it took us 15 episodes to get through day one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's long, and things can exist in parallel with it, time permitting, occasion permitting. My emotional investment is highest in this game. Uh, I'm not super pleased that things have stalled out on other fronts, but at the same time, the reality is you work with what you have, so we're still adjusting and working with that. That being said, I would say since we came off of Resident Evil, where... The writing is basically the antithesis of Disco, I want to say. Best exemplified by maybe an old Yahtzee sketch about Solid Snake, where the dialogue in Metal Gear Gear games is, Metal Gear! Metal Gear! Metal Gear! Bother me! That's about how good that goes. Um, Because to, to, to specify, the writer has a lot to say. Boy, do they take an unsexy way of communicating what they have to say to the audience much of the time. If you're paying attention to the macro, you'll get it. But in the conversation, you're going, ah, fuck this. So from Resident Evil to Disco, something co-op orientated that doesn't take itself too seriously as an overcorrection could work. I don't think that we own any pieces of uh, Gears, but we could, depending. Gears of War? Something in that nature. People facing the same direction and fighting and shooting, etc. Uh, there's only five on Steam. It's okay. There's options. At Gears the moment, tactic. not not quite the same. No. <laughs> we'll we'll browse the co-op co-op bar, but outside of what we discussed before, that being uh, Dead Space Three and Borderlands, and of course Titan Quest that Chucks doesn't like very much. Like what happens to you is what happens to my wife when she's watching a game. You just kind of get sleepy and your eyes get heavy, going, "Ah, this doesn't matter." I don't know. So uh, I, I enjoy like I enjoy games like that, but for something about Titan Quest, man, it's just 
there it, it's a lull. Like playing Diablo was fun. I, I think well, Titan once again, you also chose a boring build. <laughs> I did. Uh, I, I would say it has the the dark uh, make a reference to a new game, the Dark Alliance effect. Like the more people you have, the more people you're talking to while you're playing that game, the, the more fun it is. As a sure. feel. Mm-hmm. Like with Titan Quest and hold on one second, um, and I, I think that's why it lulled me. It's just okay. I'm just going here, just clicking my character. That's the advantage it has. Don't spend as much attention space really considering the stat differences because they're pretty incremental at this point. You have the advantage of exploring, clicking on things, and beating up creatures, and sometimes falling over and dying but there's enough RAM available in your brain to have a conversation with me. That's one of the reasons that I felt the game worked well, because it's not that intense. And because of that, dialogue can still occur. But if you don't partition it, if you just go all into, I gotta do this good and right, that's not what it's asking from you. I gotcha. Okay, that makes L- sense. Like later on, when you get to later campaign end stuff, where three hits and you fall down, at that point, okay, well, let me let me readdress the build. But it's meant to be mostly lackadaisical outside of maybe boss encounters. That's where we can discuss things like history and politics and uh, what shaped nipples you prefer. (laughs) Uh, Everybody's got a preference. Everybody does. I like symmetry. Now, drifting a little bit from that also to things that surprise you. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I mentioned this, but my new father-in-law... He he tries to connect with me. He has a difficult time. Uh, it's not his fault. If we're using the language, he's he's very neurotypical, very traditional. Uh, and in that perspective, I'm mostly a walking failure, which I get. But he finds me interesting, so occasionally we want to connect. He watched Amazon Prime's original animated adaptation of Invincible, first season, eight episodes. That's a good show. And he he felt I should really, really watch it. And so when I asked him, what, um, why? Because I hear the boys is good. But again, mostly superhero shit. I've already seen Watchmen and read Watchmen. What conversation can we possibly have here? And so he showed me the hook. A specific scene out of context. And that scene, you probably know, comes at the end of episode one. Like a mid credit scene. And of course, it did what it's supposed to do. It caught my attention. And I had questions. And he said, we'll just watch the show. I said, okay, fine. Fuck. You, you won't talk to me about this until after I've done it, because you want me to walk the steps. It's eight episodes. I'll watch the show. I did it in two settings. So basically, like three episodes and five episodes. Sitting one, sitting two. And I gotta tell you, Chucks, it was painful to watch the first episode up until the twist. And that's by design, because it it keeps showing you DC animation level stuff that you have seen before. All the expected boxes are there, ticked off. You know what you're seeing, so you keep thinking, okay, at some point there's going to be surprise. At some point there's going to be a twist. The twist arrives. And it's I, I can't say it's fun to watch. I can't say it's satisfying to have that much attention paid to the scene. But I was pleased when the show became a uh, a mystery show. You got to figure out what happened. How did this happen? My findings overall, 
is that half of the season is satisfying. About three and a half episodes of overall runtime are satisfying to the kinds of things I look for in shows that deal with superpowers. And roughly the other half is very performative. It's there. Serves a function. It's, uh, I don't know. It's not fun to see. It's more about let's discuss the writer and what they do. So for the time being, I mean, I imagine this far into a cast, spoilers aren't a huge deal, but for now let's pretend that we're talking about something that protects the audience from revealing too many secrets. You said it's a really good show. So what is your, uh, let's call it flavor overview of the show? Flavor overview? Um, I know a little bit about the comics. Uh Uh-huh. So I knew going in what the twist you were talking about was. Um, uh-huh. Because there are certain... I, I watch certain comic book channels on the uh, YouTubes, and uh, two of them covered them, and so you find out some things from them. Um, and I've enjoyed them. And so when they stuck almost essentially to everything that the comic book did, I knew... Like, I, I finally got to see what it was like in live action instead of just imagining how they spoke and how these things were playing out. And... Uh, I was excited and the way they did it to me is how you should do a TV show based off comic books. Preachers. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the show preacher. I heard about it. Haven't seen it. It's a comic book too. Um, yeah, I, yep. I, I enjoyed it. It was on AMC. I don't think it's still on AMC. I think it only did three seasons and then it's no longer on there. Um, it's not a superhero show. It's, it's that's different. It's closer uh, to Constantine. Yeah. Eh, kind of. Not really. Um, okay. I, going, like I said, going into it, I knew about it. So, seeing how the, the they did with the characters, what the animation style was, who they got to cast in each role, good job. I the the casting is spectacular. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think... I don't think people give Walton Goggins enough credit, but I truly appreciated Walton Goggins. J.K. Simmons? No, 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 no. No, Don't worry about the heavy hitter. We know J.K. Simmons is good. Oh, yeah. I I have no real affection for, but he did a good job. And the the people you expect in anime world to show up and do their job did well. Do you know Walton Goggins? I don't know anything else he's done. Yeah, you do. Do You saw him in Django and Hateful Eight. You saw him in Predators. You saw him in a number of things that you didn't realize. Oh, oh shit. Okay. It's the dude with the big forehead. It is. Cecil. <laughs> he did a good job, good job of Cecil. Oh, yeah, no, he did a great job of Cecil. Yeah, no, don't get me wrong. Yeah, he... And then, uh, uh, Seth Rogen showed up for a couple episodes. That was okay, I guess. Oh, no, no, he'll, he he is a vital character, sir. I'm sure, but not on the scale, scope of the show. And he... we'll get there. We'll talk about that in a minute. But for now, I need you to more or less address these eight episodes as a run pretend pretend the show is not renewed for more this is all you get disappointment i would say then disappointment yes really because so what it, it left you making for more yeah so it left me wanting for more um hold on here let me how do i word this because i knew what happened and i know what's going to happen to leave it how it ended at the end of that first episode, I'm and they were just like, it's not nothing else is coming out. It didn't do that well. It's it's the boogie playing the D and D meme. I would say, I would be flipping the table. <laughs> like uh, I, I end my turn. Like ah! no, you don't end your turn. God dang it! You finish this. 
What if Gurren Lagann ended at the end of the first arc? <laughs> Everyone's crying in the rain. End of I the could, show. I could deal with that. Uh huh. Okay. I know what it ended up with. It kept the pace. But if you were just like, yeah, this guy dies. This is the end of it. Like the, but what happens? Uh, yeah, you know, I wanted more, but you know, I get it. Like you, you got they they wanted a dream, and the person who was leading to that dream died. Oh well, <laughs> like I, that. But Gurren Lagann, I, I would say, if it ended at episode eight, where that happened, uh-huh. yeah, I, I get it. Uh, this, on the other hand, um, because I knew what was happening, I know what they're going to lead up to. Mm-hmm. That's what want, makes me want more, because what they're going to do with everything is what I want to see, and how they're going to. It's kind of like The Walking Dead. I got into The Walking Dead and watched the first three seasons to see how they were going to do it. And they interesting, did, you say that. That's a Robert Kirkman thing. That both of them did it. He did. Yeah, both. that's the, and uh, something else he did that actually kind of shows up here in the show. In the second episode, I what the fuck? This is a huge tone change. Then I looked it up and said, okay, it makes complete sense. But please finish your thought. Yeah, so that was the same reason I got into The Walking Dead and see how they did. And then after season three, it's, the hype train got so much. And everybody's like, oh my god, I, I need to know who gets killed. And I'm like, I know who gets killed. They ain't going to change it. And it was. It was... Uh, Stephen Young's character from The Walking Dead. I'm like, yeah, they didn't change a goddamn thing. They just didn't have his eyeball blow out of his head. It did come out, but it didn't go out like in the the comic book. And it's it was not maximum fucking velocity. Yes. Yeah, because you're you're on a you're on, you're on a, <laughs> a a channel that's controlled by the FCC that's not premium um, on the TV. So on this, you're on Amazon. So there are no FCC regulations. There is nothing you can. The, Amazon's the one who controls it. Um, I want to know if he changes small, subtle things like he like he had help with in The Walking Dead. Um, so I, I want to see where it goes and the excitement for that. And they already they, after I think after the first two episodes, they announced that season two was coming out next year. And three. Did they announce season three? I've only heard two. Three's confirmed. Oh, three's confirmed. Well, that's good to hear too. So I want to see because there's so much. Like uh, what what. Uh, what's the name? Something Beast. The the lion that he fights. I hate to break some. In uh, I think that's episode six. Uh, sure. f- for the the guy that he to overthrow. Uh, that becomes a whole subplot, and then that guy becomes a subplot too. I mean, there's so many things that happen in the comic books. I want to see if they tackle, and if they do, uh, you know, boom, Amazon has got a hit on their hands. They already know they have a hit on their hands. Um, there isn't just about anything Robert Pro- Robert Kirkman has done. That is bad in comics that can't be tra- translated to uh, TV or cartoons in general for anybody. If Netflix is going to pick something up, um, well, you know that that's the language he writes in. Unfortunately, yeah. he writes in TV language. He does. It has its strengths, and to me, it has a lot of weaknesses. But that's just my preference. No, no, I get it. it ha- like you said, it has its strengths and weaknesses. Uh, I, you know, one of his things that he created back in the early two thousands. Marvel Zombies is finally being pitched on Disney Plus as a TV show with the What If universe. I I, I read some of those actually in the library. Weirdly enough, yeah, and they're they're good. So, but you know, I I want to see what happens. I still want to if they got three seasons in and they're only going to do eight to ten episodes on each. Perfect pace. They don't need to do what they do with a lot of TV shows. Like we will give you an eight season, you know, perfect eight, pace. Eight, 
Well, perfect for, pace. Yeah, we'll discuss that in a second here. Well, that's what I'm saying. For the whole arc, eight to ten episodes would be fine to go over everything, and you can get a couple seasons out of it. I don't know if pace is the right okay. word that I should have used. I think it's the right amount of episodes that they need to stick to. Um, it's the it's the right span of span of time spent. Yeah. 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 Especially okay. with the length of each episode. So, should we get specific? Yeah, you can. Go ahead. Okay. So the thing that jumped out at me about Alan the Alien, which is a character that you assure me is going to be important, is, is that Robert Kirkman wrote Battle Pope. Great comic Of which book. I have two volumes. And that particular tone of humor is perfectly reflected in this situation. I don't not appreciate it, but I think to myself, perhaps this writer's toolbox is not as buried as I expect. As I was watching the show, before we get to super specifics, there were many competing thoughts in my head as far as whether this tone condemns or encourages the very framework of having superheroes. I mentioned Watchmen before. Watchmen's entire thesis is superheroes are a fucking terrible idea, and here's why. And there's only one supernatural character in that entire story. And that character is beyond just eclipsing in power anybody else in reality, known or otherwise, but still susceptible to being manipulated. And that becomes part of the part of the whole gist. The giant blue man with his giant blue dong with absolute god powers, it vaguely remembers being a human being, and as long as that channel exists, it can be used to shape world events. I was thinking about One Punch Man, specifically season one, because this is a show that begins to... I mean, first of all, it's Kirkman, so gore. Lots of gore. Tactically placed bombshells of gore. Uh, one Punch Man also has gore. It's actually fairly explicit, except... The tone and the pace is almost more comedic than horrifying, because when you splatter Vaccine Man or the uh, the the car guy or the mosquito lady in a single blap, or the One Punch Man version of Battle Beast, interestingly enough, a single uppercut blows it to chunks. I mean, it's intense, but you go, yeah, instead of, oh God, what is he doing to that person? And a lot of that happens with tone, the tone of storytelling. Kirkman wrote Invincible over 15 years, roughly speaking, 2003 to 2018. About the same and, amount of time as The Walking Dead. Yeah. He wrote it in chunks, in releases. That's a long span of time in a man's life, writer or otherwise. So the tone, of course, shifts and changes throughout this. And I was thinking, actually, at the very beginning, in retrospect, like there, there's the anachronistic, oh, a newspaper at a house. It's probably only there to set us up for the classic 50s hero tone before we get to anything else. And cell phone usage and tablet usage actually wasn't very prolific in the season until later chapters. But something curious happens here where the creator of the show who's involved, he wrote the first and last episode and consulted on the rest of the first season. You can definitely tell when the, when the writer's hand is applied directly and is taken off because the tone shifts. And he has the rare opportunity to edit his own work so that, you know, in the comics, maybe, I read the synopses of the different arcs. The episode where 
Mark goes to Mars to have a Mars adventure to set up the Cyclids and the Martians. That happens after the run of issues portrayed in this arc. But we threw it in there because we needed to fill up some runtime, introduce future concepts, and have the character react to an actual task. But ultimately, it's an inconsequential trip, minus the part where possibly we're doing one or two civilizations because we're young and inexperienced, and heroes make mistakes when they're young and inexperienced. But you also get to have little tidbits. Like, for example, the thing that Omni-Man does in the beginning is like a single-panel thing with throwaway characters, but we spend these characters... We spent a whole episode with them, basically, to set them up as pieces of the world. Lingering on that moment creates a lot more attachment and a sense of of being present within a space. At the same time, it's kind of a cheap trick because you get to care just enough for it to make a difference, right? Yeah. I mean, that's with TV, you have to do that. You want these people to feel connection to these characters, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's a plot twist. That's because it's going to be for people who don't know what's going on. And that's yeah, yeah. And I, I get why they did it. Don't get me wrong. Um, it it's like you said, TV writing. TV writing has to be done differently than comic book writing. Comic book writing is different than writing a book that- and movie writing. Everything of the sort. I mean, yes, they're all writing, but they have to be done differently because there's different aspects that you have to hit with people. Yeah, format conventions. I, I understand and respect that. I just feel it holds it back as a story. But then again, I'm the one demanding something that the format isn't really offering. For the sake of indulging someone saying, dude, just watch the thing and we'll discuss it. I felt that it touched on things, but merely skirted over them, which is what adaptations will have to do. Even One Punch Man Season 1, that I praise so much, is a collection of a manga translation of a webcomic. So the condensing effect is very real. But what you would choose to do with it is kind of a different effect. So, uh, for example, it's plainly clear to the audience most of the time that there's a collection of heroes that appears in a team, which I actually thought it was team team instead of teen team, but it doesn't matter. They have fanciful names and robot. With a skull face and a plain name, you probably can suspect there's something more to this character that we'll see. And the intrigue builds as robot is doing things behind the scenes. And I think it was in the sixth episode, possibly seventh if I'm remembering poorly, uh, the result of his arc uh, comes to fruition. And at this present point in time, it feels like an underwhelming resolution to the arc. Except that, as you tell me, and as I've read ahead, that sets up opportunities for the future. But we're not worried about what's in the future, we're worried about what's happening here and now. So a bunch of stuff happened, and the net effect seems to be less than the, the, the sum of its parts. And we'll get to that in a second as well with specifics, but just, I, I see the setups, and I think, uh-huh, uh-huh, and then, and then, oh, that's what you did with it. Okay, cool. The character Replicate, for example. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not her show. I understand this. We are given a demonstration early on in the second episode that her powers are actually kind of existentially horrific, because we don't know if it's a transference of consciousness, if what happens to a previous iteration of her body transfers to the person or not, but there's a line they're killing me faster than I can make myself. Which, in the middle of an action scene, is just, a, oh, that's bad. But if you slow down and think about it, it's very bothersome. Like, that's a nightmare scenario. And there's a scene played for laughs where, oh, one of the team members is having a threesome with with her. Because you can just make more bodies. And it's not made explicitly clear if Replicate can make more than four of herself. I don't know if it's a, like a perpetual thing, because we saw a prisoner in the containment facility that had like seven copies of herself. 
but kind of spoiler for the film The Prestige with Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. Uh, what do you do with the spares? Do you do you have to kill them? Do you let them run free in the field? Do they all? Is it a hive consciousness? These are the questions that I have in my mind that the show doesn't address. It just says this character can flash clone themselves with clothes and individual numbers at will to a certain capacity. And when facing down a garrison of gunmen, that might not be the answer. Like that, that That's useful if you can just shit up more kung fu people quickly. But what if they all die at once, or there's one left? Does that haunt your memories and destroy you as a person? Are you a human being? Are you the thing? Chucks, the show is not interested in answering these questions. No. They just want to show you that this Asian girl can make more Asian girls. It's actually actually kind of hot if you want to bathe with multiple Asian girls at the same time. If you have Tarzan's body and uh, personality of Kuno. TV writing, you know? TV writing. It's okay. I get it. I think she does explain that if her original self gets killed, that they all die. Who is the original self? To bring up another set of characters, uh, I was very pleased, actually, very pleased, that the Mahler twins, who were introduced as a throwaway, who cares, set of bad guys, continue to show up throughout the run and honestly get more solid as time goes on because what they play for our laughs starts cheap and gets better. And they actually address a good sci-fi question when they explicitly say, you understand this is a consciousness copy, not a transference. Like that, that's, that's a often neglected piece of logic when it comes to these kinds of stories. So I give mad props for even putting it to pen and paper and showing it to the public, um, even if you don't take it very far. Just, huh. just the dimension is good. I like their quote when they were talking like, hey, who's the original when they're talking about themselves? Like, yeah. I told you I'm the original. You're the copy. Well, how do I know? That? How do you know? Because I'm the one who did this. Well, how do I know that? We share the same memory. So to me, I'm the one who did it. And, it, and the, yeah, they, they even address the point and they say, we deliberately make it so that we don't know. Implying in the past, they knew. And that led to, to very specific behaviors, whether dominance or jealousy. So, to continue to exist in this fashion, however they got to be big and blue and bulletproof, the, the process is such that there are only two, and no, one, no one's sure who's the clone, even though the show gives us visual distinctions of one tying off a jumper, etc., etc. But that balance, again, that, that shows consideration, that shows cleverness, that shows authorial intent undiluted by tropes or expectations, or at least they play with the tropes very, much, very well. I like that. I want to celebrate that. If only the show were more consistent in what it chooses to care about. But uh, again, that, that's what the market demands. Um, before we get to the big things, there's been a lot of complaint on some of the community, because of course when I watch something that impacts me, I go to the internet and I go see who else is talking and what are they saying. Not just to affirm my opinions, but have them challenged or have things addressed or point out what I missed, which I really enjoy. Not like, hey, ending explained! No, not that. But give me a decent essay. And I found a couple. Uh, people seem to not enjoy Amber very much. And I think this is because Amber, as portrayed, is an irrational character. Because she's the needy, whiny girlfriend that is super judgmental and hostile and abrasive and then delivers a line, oh, like, I knew you were, I knew you were a superhero for weeks 
which negates the entire arc of their visit to the university because then that's just psychopathic behavior. Well, she, so, wait, wait, wait. Did she say she knew before that? Or I thought she said she found out after that is what she said. After the episode ended, or at the very end of that same episode, she oh, yeah, said, yeah, yeah. I knew for weeks. So, so her how be- time passes, time, time does pass in this run of episodes, but it's not clear if it's days or weeks. But just how flippantly she says it, there's a strong implication that during their pre- immediately preceding adventure, she knew and she was testing him. Yeah, that, that I remember. Yeah, no, that's kind of messed up. And that, but that that is going to be your typical teen, though. He's playing it as a typical early two thousands teen, and how oh, he's not they, a typical. Teen. She is woke as fuck. She is based on red pill. She is there to represent multicultural rights. She is there to be a modern ass woman. But if this is the behavior she wishes to engage in, I mean that's pretty classic. Yeah, and I think. Knowing what what goes on afterwards with her and Mark, it's not going to be that big. Kind of like, like it, she 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 plays a pivotal role, but she also doesn't play a pivotal role later on. Um, well, it, like in, in the relationship, context, in context with future events as well, Mark should not care as much as he does. The only reason he cares as much as he does is he's young. He hasn't oh. been around as much. Oh yeah, no, he does. He doesn't know better. It's like his first. Serious girlfriend, and oh man, like dang it, like, like oh, like, uh, like this sucks. And speaking it, of, go ahead, please finish. No, that. no, 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 you're, you're good. Uh, but I was just getting at like what I was saying was like he's going through his first serious high school relationship, so he's like, oh man, I gotta be the best. He's putting the pressure on him, and it, it putting the pressure on himself. And he, the the character is written correctly how a lot of teen boys act in their first like high school relationship. Like I got to do the best and everything. And then they get butthurt kind of when like, Oh, we're breaking up because you know, I was testing you and you don't realize that it's terrible behavior on the other person for doing that. I suppose, but it's for TV. It's simplified and sterilized except for those fine points. But I, I understand what they're getting at. Do you remember the, uh, the episode with doc seismic? What yeah. Mark is, who helped save Mount Rushmore. Yep. Him and, uh, what is it? Mr. Mrs. Him or no, Adam, Adam Eve. Adam Eve. Yes. Thank you. I couldn't remember her name. Adam Open Autumn. Uh, I think at that point, you can tell that Kirkman has less to do with the episode. I think that Amazon knew the marketing needed to ratchet up because at least personally, the wokeness seemed to really ratchet up in that episode. In the dialogue, and just not even discussing anything, just throwing out recognizable tropes because maybe the liberal inclined viewership will say, I identify with those words. Yeah, man, those concepts. Even little, little things like the villain saying, Just look at the disgusting outfit they've got you in. Talk about the male gaze. And the character's rebuttal is, um, I designed my own outfit which is also meant to be a rebuttal of, I was not directed, I'm a strong, proud woman, I can do what I want. That's not what she says. But there's a tone there. And there's just constant little jabs that were so modern, which my concern is, one, I don't know if they were there in the comic, I don't think so. This sounds like last four years' development speech patterns. And two, whenever anything in video games it's photorealism whenever anything tries to be modern or cutting edge it ages way faster than something that seems timeless with something that goes for 
non-specific but but uh, atmospheric execution. When a place feels like a time period, but not because it's trying to say, okay, and in this release period, these stories were happening. That was super current, yada yada. Instead, it's yeah, sometime in the aughts or sometime in the seventies or whatever. I I'm not sure I appreciated it because I noticed what the writers were doing. I saw them winking at me, and I I felt like leaving the room. Did it bother you at all? No, um, I figured with a lot of way TV and movies and stuff are being doing being done nowadays i was expecting that to be in there i mean you gotta i mean look look at the uh the avengers they did a segment like that like we're strong and powerful it didn't bother me in that either it's just one of those things that you expect in movies now i expect in movies now i don't know if everybody expects that in movies now but i don't it didn't bother me at all like i get but, it they had to address it in some way shape or form and amazon being amazon they're gonna do it so it's like yeah it's an amazon company did they get writers that were probably from that area where they're based out of, yeah, so you should expect it in there. But it's pandering. If movies, or whatever stories, those stories can integrate relevant issues well. Not signposting, not calling out and saying, hey, wait, look at that. Is that a social justice warrior? Whatever that happens to be. If the terminology is explicit, it's recognizable, but it goes nowhere. That Whereas, needs yeah. to be a character. A creative character for the TV show. I'm sure they will. Call that something Glover. No, no, just call him that and just social justice warrior. Yeah, so, yeah. the social justice warrior, and just have him go out and fight everybody. What like, does the character do? Nothing. It does nothing. It's just really loud. <laughs> okay, so this is gonna come off in a bad way. I don't have a way to spin this that is not disfavorable with the North American experience. I'm gonna cut you off for two seconds. Okay. Name something that we haven't said that doesn't offend somebody in some way. We say a lot of offensive stuff, so that's it's not surprising that anything that's about to come out of either one of our mouths is going to be offensive to somebody. Cheeseburger. Yeah, see, that's uh, we were talking Peter. genocide earlier. What's a little bit of racism? So, not that it matters. Actually, it does matter. Think about it. Not that it matters. But uh, Mark is an Asian American. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't know it, Except for logically looking at his mom and noticing the corners of his eyes. So in the comic books, he's not. You don't get to find out what the mom is. The mom is not. You don't find out what race she is. Nor does it matter. Nor does yeah, correct. <laughs> Nor does it matter? But, but we have because 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 in this series, if you pay attention, Whitey is actually pink. Uh, we have just. What feels like token representation. And I say that with a show that's got a fish guy in it with a number of other things. But there's this sense of appealing to modernity and a sense of, look, look, represent it. There's, and I'm not saying this is an issue. Just it's noticeable that when the mom shows properties to sell, I mean, the Russian woman is white and redheaded. Okay, cool. Or Slavic, nondescript Slavic woman living in, in Moscow. The couple looks at the house as a happy-looking, young, uh, white and black couple, apparently. Um, other people throughout the city, when it matters, suddenly like their ethnicities are made to be explicitly different. They don't state, I am this, but people don't look homogenous. There's a lot of uh, contrasting colors appearing throughout this feature. Uh, would it have mattered if the uh, the grandma that Mark tried to save unsuccessfully been been uh, clearly not white? Not that it would matter. I don't think so. The reason I bring this up is because when you have fewer characters in the cast, 
Now that I think about it, the uh, the Defense Bureau Agency, they're all mostly white. Never mind. Um, <clears throat> it's shown on screen. And you don't, they don't call it out. You don't think about it. But in not thinking about it, you absorb the information. And you think to yourself, well, does this matter? Is this part of the storytelling context? And you could say that if this is meant to portray a fictional North America where all p- kinds of people live and interact together, then yeah, yeah, that does make sense. On the other hand, is it a part of the story, or are you just trying to catch on as many dollars as you can? Because Mark has a gay friend. That doesn't go anywhere except for one episode when that character gets their time to, quote, shine. And I don't know if this matters or not, because I can't speak from that experience, but the gay friend is shown to be very keen in perceiving relationship dynamics, and when it's his episode, very horny. I don't know if that is really key to his experience as a human being, or if this is just a token nature of saying, no, 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 we we acknowledge that uh, queer people exist, and they like to fuck, and it's in the show. But that's true of just about anyone. So then my question is, if we're doing this, then why are the superhero relationships relatively normative? Are, are you saying that people without powers are prone to more curious behaviors? Because the, the, the biggest we get is, uh, we're technically in spoilers, so uh, Robot has feelings for Monster Girl, which does not have any physical manifestation in relationship. And uh, Rexplosion has a out-of-agreement sexual encounter with Replicate, which he finds to be disposable, which upsets Adam Eve. But again, no- nothing else goes anywhere. So if you include an element of a character, like, hey guys, clearly gay. Good for you. What else do you do? Not much. Okay. They didn't lean in far enough. Amber as a character is actually relatively plain, which is why her visual design is busy. The hair, the jewelry, the outfit, and of course in TV shows, for reasons, people don't change. They have their signature outfits most of the time. But it's upsetting because if this character has more to say visually than with their words, then their narrative merit is lower. This could have been balanced out with some more attention. But the the excuse is, it's not the character's show. It's all about the, 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 the Grayson family, primarily. So I found that it distracted me more than it helped sell the idea that this is a modern metropolitan community because, <clears throat> excuse me, I didn't see any Indian people, didn't see any Malaysians, didn't see any Germans, didn't see any... You got my point. Yeah. The people to focus on were just enough to say, oh, different walks of life can't coexist. Give me like 30 seconds. I got to clear my throat. No, I, I, I get your point completely. Like, they they did it enough just to say, hey, we have diversity in here. So that way it can include everyone in the in the field of uh, uh, diversity. It I, to me, I, I didn't notice it a whole lot. I noticed that, the, like you said, they changed Amber. Amber's uh, was white in the comic books. They turned her to black. Which, hey, no big deal. Do what you got to do. Um, well, because modern modern times, right? Time I, I don't, past, I don't know why they did that. I'm assuming that might be the reason, but I can't 100% say. Because uh, Mark's not white. Mark's yellow. 
Not that it matters, but it's meant to say we can all get along in the cheapest way possible. Um, how do you feel in this run of episodes? <clears throat> Actually, what was Rex explosion? Is he Hawaiian? He's Latino. Oh, Latino. Oh, with the red hair. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, the robot side plot. How do you feel about it? It makes sense, slightly, because you can see that that he cares for Monster Girl and that he wants to now know what a, to have these real emotions uh, feels like. And so that's what he does. He gets his own body to do it. I, I don't mind it. It It's not bad. What do you mean by real emotions? Because robot is not robot. Robot, robot is a person. Robots with drones. Yeah, with drones. He's he's well, you gotta remember he's in a vat. Yeah. He's in a metalocalypse style, which that show I run it's this a lot as well. He is in a nightmare life sustenance tank. And he works through proxies. But when you say real emotions, I, I think that this is made entirely for reveals. Because you could believe that someone would survive in the system until their thirties, let's say. And just every desire they would have had in life naturally would have been suppressed by you're not going to be able to have this because you can't make bodies good. Do you think that was it the intensity of sentiment he felt for someone like for the first time, basically for some reason for life? Or was it that he got burdened with working for fucking teenagers for so long that something real happened in him and he said, okay, I have a plan now. I think it's the intensity. He finally felt the intensity of loving somebody or having emotions for someone and hoping that they... was a... so... someone that was appeared to him, someone that wasn't a regular person, but instead had the burden of being special. Correct. She had the opportunity. He knows what she's going through. Someone who knows what he's having done to him uh, in a way that, you know, she is actually 23 in the body of a 13-year-old. Right. And he's like, I'm trapped in a body that I don't, you know, so I create, I got this new body so I can, you know, uh, not, I can be with you and I can have the same emotions for you that, you know, it should be and you don't have to feel awkward because I'm the, you know, same age. And later on, they do, they do bring this back up in the comics. I, I will disclose that I read ahead in all the story arcs in summary. Mm-hmm. Without specifics, but where the stories go. I'm very worried about the staying power of this story progressing. Because, regrettably, as a function of having a popular, marketable comic book property, meaning it makes the monies, landing it is one of those things you have to keep delaying. So, every now and then, you just get into contrivances where characters act in ways that they wouldn't, but they have to to push the story in a certain direction. And at least once, there's an instance where, fuck, I wrote myself into a corner. Uh, parallel realities! Oh, yeah. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, I forgot about that one. I, the, the more I read, the more I thought, well, shit, I think this might be a one-punch man season one situation where it, it leaves an impression when it begins, and if it has to keep going... There's about, from what I from what I read synopsis wise, there's maybe another season, maybe maybe two to stretch it to. But again, what story are you telling at this point? 
because um, the, no. the, the, the fuckery that occurs, we'll talk about it in a sec, because, I mean, this is just what we're doing now. Ch- chop it up. Make more episodes. Um, I okay. say you at least okay. have four total seasons you can do, four to five. Yeah. Okay. I, I can't ask the following questions that we address Mark and Nolan. So for now, we are asked to believe that Robot slash uh, Ruben, was it? Yeah, I believe it's Ruben. It just never occurred to him to uh, to act in such a fashion before, ever, in all his life, which is hard to believe. The harder thing to believe is that he operated under Cecil's nose. He broke containment and did bad things because, quote, it was all handled. It was within control. He could, he could control the situation, right? He's doing a personal errand. He's using company resources, basically, to free source himself a fleshy body so that he can uh, spend time with Monster Girl, who will continue to get younger and thus eventually blip out of existence or be a toddler. And he will maybe age, question mark? Hard to say. Bad plan. Good mystery, but bad plan. And Cecil, who monitors all the special supers and has basically unlimited teleport charges to just do whatever, he, he is a mastermind. He is a guy who resigned himself to the role of monitoring this clusterfuck of a world, and there's just no way he wouldn't have known. None. I don't care how smart Ruben is. Yeah, no, he, sh- he should know. I agree with you on that, Ed. Ruben should have found out. Not Ruben's, god dang it. He, he <laughs> yeah, he should have found out. He probably saw which way it was going, thought about how it's going to end up, thought to himself, eh, harmless. Honestly, the worst that we'll do is mix up a team, and I can, I can manage that. Just more work for me later. So when you have that scene where we're revealing that someone's the control panel, and then Cecil walks in and goes, how's, it, how's the team going? Like you, the, the show is really big in using nebulous language that doesn't lie, but doesn't get specific, so you have room to reinterpret what you're doing. Classic trick, right? Yeah. Uh, what, what do you... Well, <laughs> yeah. What do you think of the small set? What not Demon Detective? What the hell's his name? Damien Darkblood, voiced by fucking Clancy Brown. Yes, thank you, Sergeant Sergeant Zim, the Kurgan. Yeah, uh, Mr. Krabs. Well, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Krabs, Demon Detective. <laughs> mm. That'd have been great if you used that voice for that character. <laughs> I enjoyed listening to Clancy Brown. I enjoyed less watching the events occur, but I get that the writer, Kirkman, basically wanted to do a Hellboy, but his way. So as a noir sleuth, it's... The question I posited was, who found out first? Who discovered what happened first? Was it Cecil, or was it Damien? I want to say Cecil figured it out first. I'm going to say Cecil figured it out within like the first day or two and just knew it and was like, I got to play along with it. Likely, but we don't know how long it took for Damien to do his work either. But the point is, Cecil basically told Damien, don't let anyone else know, because he knew at that point, right? But Damien's like, conscience, 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 slash, I want to fulfill more bounties and contracts because I'm not going back to hell. So Cecil had to take him off the board. It's understandable because being honest right now would sna- it would trip the snare. It would put set things into motion before they were ready. So it's unfortunate that this happened. You know what it reminded me of? Do you remember Cool World with Brad Pitt? Yes, it was the cartoon characters. Yeah. Do you remember how uh, the animated woman who eventually became the lady who I get to go right now? She 
basically killed one of the tunes by sucking him into an inkwell. Yes. Yeah, like that that's kind of a harsh scene. It's pretty cruel to see because it's someone saying, "Well, I'm getting my way and then you're going to go away in a in a painful fashion." Slow enough that you realize what's happening. So, rebanishing slash sending Damien home by Cecil was sort of a unnecessary, well, okay, necessary but unpleasant measure. So the inclusion of the detective is he only really exists to push Nolan's wife, Debbie, I think, into more doubt. But that's just a metaphor for destabilizing marriage over a secret. Like, we're trying to play into real-life nuance here, but clumsy because superheroes. So ultimately, I find Damien underwhelming. Clancy's presence is very, ple- very, very welcome. But the character's execution for their role was a little bit soft for me. And we never explain why he's wearing uh, high-tech pajamas to get the demons out. Maybe if Damien had another rival that didn't know what was up, but wanted just to get in the way of him, which would have been a necessary element of complication, but it gave him more dimension than just showing up with a cool gimmick of making the air cold and Cecil ordering the room to be empty. So, to me, at this point, and I know that Alan the Alien has more to do, but it's about the same. Hey, here's a quirky character. They did their thing, they delivered their lines, and they left the screen. Fuck off, here we go. Uh, The university thing is once again a reshift, because the whole purpose of uh, William, was it? Mark's gay friend? Yes. Losing his romantic interest in a tragic way, horrific way, really. That is all there just to put reanimens on the board, which, as I read, happened later in the storyline. But the designers of the show said, we need some way to at least introduce the concept. It might be brought back in uh, Reanimans Mark II. But again, Cecil being the absolute badass autocrat that he is, he's going, what's that? You got a cool villain? He's got a cool gimmick? Put him on the staff. Put him on payroll. Put a bomb in his head. Don't worry, we'll, we'll make this work. So the, the, the sewer adventure in the university with flowering love and giving Mark a possible opportunity to say, I like being a person. I think I can really fit in here. It just betrays how further lost he is and there's this self-definition between being a hero and a person. But that's like the overarching tone that <clears throat> that the whole show rocks around. Even yeah, <laughs> giving Adam Eve every girl's dream. All was missing was a pony. She got to run away and save the rainforest. Because she actually could. With her powers, she could do better than nature and create irrigation channels and save farmers and Make French press coffee because that's what's important. So you get to live in a fairy tree house with all the modern conventions and comforts, and by day, be a better mother slash big sister to the world and the world is capable of doing. While I know it's meant to be empowering, it also makes me think that this it's this idyllic, impossible Neverland space where you get to play around until someone comes and breaks all your toys, or you realize, yeah, this is bogus. Like this is a fantasy. I'm not actually helping anything. How do you feel about that segment? Like I said, nothing in the show really bothered me. Like every, I didn't mind every segment. Like to me, it it made sense why they put some of it in, and some of it was boring. But it, it didn't bother me. Nothing essentially in well, the end ever bothered me in the show. Even in eight, only eight episodes, there was still filler. I find that difficult to swallow. 
but it sets things up in the future. So is it going to be filler yeah, three seasons? So what? If there's a future, that's the thing. Yeah. So if if it does set it up later on, uh-huh. what if, if there's between a be- season two and three, or before season two arrives, uh, Kirkman's baggage gets dug up. They find out about Battle Pope, and it gets canceled. Now the whole thing goes away. The story can't be told. This reinterpretation of the story has been rewritten for modern times. It doesn't get to be told. They're going to do the same thing that they did to the guy from Nickelodeon that uh, created Loud House. Like, all right, dude, you may have created this. We'll pay you royalties, but you have nothing to do with the show anymore. We're just going to take it the way we want to. Okay, fair enough. I mean, all it, right. it sucks to hear, but that's what they're going to do. Let's talk about the big thing. What's the big thing? Viltramites. Ah, okay. Viltramites, yes. Vil- Viltramites, so, yes. In, in the beginning... At the end of episode one, after la la la, we're all friends, superheroes, Justice League, we all have normal lives. And then Omni-Man, who has been shown to be a reluctant, he's a world savior, but doesn't want to play on a team, he does things by his own way, and he has this fantasy marriage where he whisks his wife away to Naples and whatever. Funny thing, when Red Rush runs around, civilians vomit, but when they cross time zones in minutes, no one complains. What's up with that? Maybe it's the mustache. The mustache creates a soothing effect. I'm surprised she doesn't have her skin ripped off or suffocates. Exactly. Don't worry about it. So, uh, to say that Omni-Man dispatches the uh, Guardians of the Globe uh, does not do service to the fetishistic detail that is on display when the seven representatives of the Guardians of the Globe, who are all shown to be people in the world that have their personality, except for, unfortunately, Aquarius, poor fucking fish guy, just sits around moping, like, come on, guys, call me up, I'm cool. Uh, Nolan opens the scene by catching and crushing uh, Red Rush's head in his hands, and finishes the scene by beheading Immortal with the bloody blade of his hand, like Jimi Hendrix. And in between, the old die horrifically, uh, seeing the Batman surrogate uh, get his skull first cracked and then spilled out with a second strike, the animators and artists had a tall task ahead of them, they portrayed it well, again, fetishistically well. I struggle to call that scene invisible, invisible, <laughs> uh, enjoyable to see. Uh, at the same time, it raised a lot of thematic questions. So, Chucks, you knew this would happen by the comics, and then you watched it play out. What were your feelings? Um, I did a pretty good job with what happened in the comics to that. Um, well, in the comics, again, it's one panel. It's yeah. slash rip tear crunch and they're dead yeah so that's what i'm saying like you you know they're dead you see the aftermath so them adding a little bit more detail was fine um, a little bit more detail adding more detail yes adding I, I, painstaking detail like like look at it no really watch the skull come apart yeah they what they did was fine so what I, they did was twisting around a person's head is enough. That having the person throw up blood afterwards, through a constricted passage, might I say, just for flavor. That's not a little indulgent? I mean, you can be into it, that's okay, but just the tone that it sets is, no, look at this, no, for real, we spent a three-quarter million dollars making the scene, look at it. it like I said, they, they added more detail than the comic did, but I like what they did. It one, you have to drag out a TV show longer because, like I said, one comic book is not a whole... like Getting every panel for one comic book is not going to make you a whole TV episode. That's going to be, like like you said, like 10 minutes at most, 15. Um, so with them adding those details, I think 
gives you more sensibility. Like you said, they added these characters. You know them from beginning to end. And then to see them have this happen to him and how it happened to him and what, what happened with Omni-Man just stiffening his arm and chopping off the immortal's head like at a slice was nice. It was nice. It, it, it added it added that detail that you needed to know that these characters you thought were going to be pivotal roles if you don't know what's going on now no longer matter. And everything's going to be based around what happens next. So I like what Amazon and Kirkman did in that instance. Again, it feels like you're mostly addressing the the event and context versus the portrayal, which is okay. But it's Kirkman. Yeah. Kirkman it's... loves gore, sometimes for laughs, sometimes for oh, feels bad, man. I mean, the, the gore they added to it, like I said, it, it like nothing. It, it stands out in a episode instance because of what happens and what it affects in the series, the added gore and the blood. And then later on finding out there's still blood. There are chunks of brains here. Uh, when the new guardians of the galaxy show up uh, or teen team somewhat. Um, yeah. They, they get left a reminder like greasy smear. That could be you. So yeah. buckle up. I, and even, even saying, Oh yeah, black Adam, one of the originals. So how many? How often do the Guardians of the Globe rotate in this world? Yeah, it the detail and everything and what, like I said, what they did with the scene, I enjoyed. I thought it was good. It helped set up the rest of the TV series, and the way they portrayed it was done fine. It they added more detail, like you said. It's only one panel in the comic, just swoosh, scratch, crack, boom, bang, ooh, ee, ooh, ah, ah. And then they go through. Dispatched. Yep. So here's the part where immediately questions that I have get raised that don't get answered. And the answer is shut up, don't think about it. We addressed One Punch Man before. Where Mm -hmm. in One Punch Man's case, the character has the terrifying capacity to flex a little and then tissue just stops functioning. And it's, it's mist or pulp or chunks, right? But he only applies it to the bad people. He doesn't ever swing on anybody who's not deserving. And he can control it to the point where he can do an air punch in front of his protege, Genos, and then shatter a mountain range and flatten out a width. But, you know, he's okay. So, to skip somewhat ahead, the, the, the violence shown in that scene is not justified until the last episode. Because it's at scale. Everything in between, like showing the uh, the Flaxian invasion in episode two, which, holy shit, what the fuck is in, in this world, in this city that they want so much that they spent a century attacking Earth unsuccessfully? Nothing. They just need to be, they, they, they need to be a uh, persistent enemy force that humanity is not equipped to handle outside of the supers. More, more specifically, Omni-Man, who, uh, when, when Daddy arrives on the scene, uh, he cleans up right quick and then goes to the invaders' home, ravages their society to the extinction, forces the scientists to give them a way home, and then just caps them off with a chunk of planet. Just race wiped out. Sterilized. Gone. But outside of we need a monster to fight to fire laser rifles and butcher people and, and Metalocalypse-style visuals, Chucks, what the fuck is in that city? They keep arriving in the same street over and over, thinking maybe this time the invasion will go better. Uh, plot convenience. That's what was there. It was like, oh, shit. Look at this. There's this right. nice spot. Yeah. 
the script. Don't think about it. Okay, so here's my issue. Uh, Nolan is a Viltrumite, and the only example we have of Viltrumites is Nolan. And Nolan tells Mark, his son, how Viltrum is, and we see idyllic Superman-esque people floating around holding large canisters because the future is just people flying around holding large canisters with one hand. And it's revealed that the society has found uh, uh, Allah, and they submitted themselves before him, and he said kill half, so they obliged, and a, a, a Sith-like dynasty of killing off the weak and competing for power, so that whatever balance remains is probably like an uneasy check of forces, where if someone slips up, the rest kill and eat them, I guess. And they get sent out to expand their empire to pacify planets. So, it's their Saiyans, and that's what Saiyans do. They send out their young to go kill a planet, or at least dominate it, and then if their power levels are strong enough, the, the passing by patrols pick them up and say, good job, kid. Welcome to the Empire. You are now a Saiyan. Would you agree? So, yeah, I can agree with that. Yeah, I can agree with that okay. 100%. The, the notion is, yeah, send a guy out. Assess the planet. What's going on? What's, what's it dealing with? Is this a viable resource colony? Is this a population center? Cool. Do it. What they say in the expanded comics lore, which, again, is very interesting, uh, <clears throat> Mark's going to have a brother, half-brother, because daddy fucked uh, somewhere else. It, even my wife like brought this up, like, you're not the first kid. <laughs> interesting you say that. And the joke is that Nolan fucked a bug creature, but it was mostly hu human. So Viltrumite DNA and cells through comic book logic are so potent that they override 90% or more of whatever the thing was that the guy fucked. Or, or, or Guyette, if you like. So, by following that logic, which the story does not do, Mark is not fitty-fitty. Mark is 90% Viltrumite. He just got the Asian eyes. He got those. Can't do anything about that. So, depending on how you're raised, Mark is living a lie because this galaxy-spanning culture of proven dangerous badasses is a force that's difficult to circumvent. And his father just apparently was just waiting, just waiting for the right time to see if the powers would emerge or not, because that was his pending decision. Um, I don't know if you read it the same way, Chucks. Maybe he just didn't think with his big head one night, and then he didn't know what to do if he had a consequence left. But that doesn't make sense, because he has a sibling. Like, uh, Nolan has been a father before, and he's abandoned as well before. So all of his decision-making just is centered around making the story about family and about family dynamics and relationships from fatherhood without being respectful of what the, who the character is. And there's a lot to unpack there. But the reason I bring this up is because much later, Nolan says, yeah, Viltrumites actually age slower as they get older, which is, I mean, that says a lot about... Adult men, am I right? Oh yeah, actually, we get stronger and sexier, and we age slower as we get older. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Remember that you're immortal. Good. Good messaging. So, we have to think that Nolan's been around as a, as a living being, as a Viltrumite, for like, let's say 500 years. Let's say 1,000 years. Let's say that Nolan... I think Nolan he's been around Omnibus. almost 1,000, yeah, something like that. Okay. And this is probably not his first gig. Because he said when his parents died, he felt lost and he joined the cause and he got sent out. And Earth is probably not his first posting. Not Urath. Urath was his first posting. 
Actually, no, because what Barry Barry Allen says, uh, no, in fact. So, <clears throat> could we assume that Nolan is a seasoned combatant? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Why the fuck was there a fight at all? Outside of spectacle, outside of TV, why did he not outpace Red Rush, like run side by side with him, wink, and then just pulp his whole body, rip him half like a book, etc.? All that happens, like the comic book panel, where it snap, 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 done. I know, the scene wouldn't happen. I have that answer. But this is someone who is calculating, efficient. Unless he's bored and playing with his food, there's no peer here. He even says later, oh yeah, Red Rush could run really fast. That's not very impressive. Even though you also talked to the tailor who said indestructible outfits, and then Red Rush could punch so hard that he tore up your chest piece and welted your chest. So, unless Nolan is also a calculating prodigy, uh, he knew that he had to make it look like he was attacked to be found by the agency. So he planned all of this around Mark's not puberty, but his adulthood. That seems really contrived, man. It just sounds like he was on vacation, bumming it around for like 20 years on Earth, and he got a reminder email like, step on it. You're supposed to conquer this shit. Well, a lot of things don't make sense for him. He was. He was waiting for essentially to, for Mark to develop to make it. But how, how does Mark figure into it? He can single handedly take everyone. He wiped out the Flaxians in a weekend. Oh, yeah. No, he, he does. Why does he do it? Why does he wait? Because he's, he's, I guess in this instance, he's showing attachment finally. He's finally getting attached and potentially questioning why he's doing everything. But it's not his first kid. It's not. Who knows but, how many families there are? Well, because this planet has living beings that kind of resemble Viltrumites. He goes, oh, yeah, I like the, I like the look of me and you. Essentially, I, I, that might be it. I, they do delve into it a little bit later on, somewhat in the comics. And... uh I, is it satisfying in terms of logic, or is it, yeah, we wrote this in? Because you could I, say... It, that it's wrote in. Cranky old bastards do get sentimental. This is true. But considering what he says to his son later on, maybe he's not that... It's okay to have someone who's conflicted. Because as he tells his own kid, you have to balance the things you have to do with the things you want to do. And he really wants to play house. And that exists within him. But here's the problem. What business do humans have writing Superman's story? Hmm. We can't relate. We're not writing what we know. We're just projecting a godlike figure and say, sure, we wrote this being to have impossible durability, speed, strength, and calculating ability. And after all of that, it still believes in morality and it wants us to survive. And it handles all of our problems. That's really masturbatory. I mean, it feels good, I understand, but I don't know. So here we say, oh, it's a Viltrumite. And you might even say that at their core, when these creatures are born and how they live, and I don't know what the, what the breeding rights slash parental rights are in Viltrum. We never discussed that, at least in this scope. Uh, it may even be that their society just beats the, the, the kindness out of them because force gets you things, and you are powerful. And you can just do whatever you want to do. So but we also understand that if we're not regulated, it's worse for us. So we have built a rigid empire. Go ahead, tell me. No, 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 no. So in the comic books, they do explain what happens with Viltrumites and 
why they do the things they do. Um, I don't want to ruin it in case they go through it. Uh, you can look into it too. Um, Remember, but, the story gets less interesting as it continues for me. I get you. I'm, if you want, if you want a good explanation of things, um, you can. There's a, a channel called Comics Explained. He's in volume 13 of Invincible. And that's who I've been watching. Gotcha. Um, so he, he, they're quick rundown, 20 minute videos, 20 30 minute videos of everything. And they do go over what happens to the Filter Bright Planets, why they're doing this, and it's essentially to keep everyone scared because if they find out the fact of what happens happened on Viltrumite and what they did, uh, everybody would have rebelled. So it's essentially to get all these planets aligned, not to mess with them, to keep themselves protected. Okay. Do you think that no one is aware of what happened on Viltrum? He was there for it. Okay. He, he was a part of it. Is is that the uh, the great calling, or is there a different event? That that's it. Because so what's the problem? The survivors seem on board. Yeah, the survivors are on board. So you know you know about that point then. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that was that was done because they needed to essentially thin out the herd. Yeah. And and when they did, reset, they did. Reset. Yeah, mm-hmm. they didn't have they didn't have enough people to essentially do what they did or what they're trying to do. So they they. But they understand, hey, we can send one person at a time. If they can't do it, um, because either the people are too strong or something of the sort, that they, you know, they have these other planets who were conquered to go in and like, hey, you got to help out. We have grunts. We're we're getting people on the front line, and we're the supreme badasses. So the breeding rights, though, since there's, you know, because of what happened, they don't have that. So they go to other planets, and then they can put these other ones in there to somewhat help out. Well, again, since they mostly override whatever the potential genetics are of the other creature, they're making versions of themselves. But I, I, there, there are strong undertones of racial purity here, which mm-hmm. is an interesting construct of thought. So they're they're kind of stuck because their own logic falls apart, unfortunately. But speaking of logic falling apart, aside from all this, this is where I have a serious problem with how durability works in these stories. Once again, in Dragon Ball... There's massive amounts of energy being thrown at one another, but people don't take bodily damage until their their spirit is broken. Then they either evaporate in a wave, maybe lose a part of their body, or sometimes get a hole in their chest and fall over. But it's a younger show. Fine. In One Punch Man, bodies just fucking explode, but only the people they need to go away. So people take punches real easy. Here, the show begins and sometimes continues with the tone that people of exceptional power abilities will just bounce off of buildings, flip cars, etc. Oh, I got a skinned knee. So is it a matter of holding back that a character can just decide to tear someone's spine up Mortal Kombat style or crush a skull? The, ne- the, the power scale is nebulous enough that they only take lasting damage. Not even that. Not even lasting. Significant damage when the plot requires it. Because you mentioned Battle Beast. During one episode, Battle Beast ostensibly like tears open Mark's abdomen and a lot of his insides fly outwards. But he's fine because high tech government medicine makes it okay. So if you if you get to the hero as he's bleeding out, if it's more than zero hit points, he's okay. I find that hard to take. Because I mean basically Nolan, remember what he did to the Green Ghost? Just mm-hmm. put his fist right in his head. He could just do that six more times. Right? Yeah. But sometimes, you know, he could get like a nosebleed or a tummy ache if someone hits him really hard if has 
comparable powers, but if fusion rifles discharge energy at him, he's not even... That's my problem. The show gives you the payoff of actual damage and terror because it's over. It's dead, right? But then it reels it right back to, oh, they're just smacking each other around and they're getting bruised. There's a little trickle of blood by the lip. Not like, guys, I can't <clears throat> be a hero anymore because after last operation, I have liver failure. I just, I can't. I, I'll live in this room now. This is my life. Oh, we just get a transplant. Like that, I struggle with that because the sensationalism makes sense, but there's little consistency in the stakes of things. Not... Yeah. So yes, certain characters hold back. One of them being uh, Mark, because he know he has that uh, creed that every in every comic book superhero story ever written, superheroes don't kill. We can brutally maim. Batman doesn't kill, even though he shoved your head into an electrical outlet while keeping your feet in water. Um, he didn't kill you. The electricity and water did. You know things like that. That that that's with Mark Omni Man and the Viltrumites don't hold back. Everyone else, though, I believe it's the same situation. They have the same creed and same things that Mark has. Like, I'm a hero. I can't kill anybody, so I gotta be cautious. I gotta watch what I do to make sure nothing bad happens to these people. Once again, because this is a story that has to last. It's not being uh, uh, reconverted into a series of films. It's, it's seasons of show. The language that it speaks necessitates that stakes will rise, they will resolve, but then the people that we're following most of the time will survive through this. So when you heighten the tension by having very graphic violence take place, doesn't that cheapen it as well? Because basically think to yourself, it'll be fun. The, the, the apocalyptic beating that your father just gave you will will just rub off. Because he only beat you so bad that your face swelled up, not so much that your teeth collapsed and your eyes melted. Yeah. At first blush, it's really significant, and then you realize, well, damn, dude. By the very necessity of your format, you were making this less significant. Because, uh, I don't I, I, sorry to reference this again, um, in Watchmen, when people go away, they go away. And the story continues without them. At that point, you get a sense, oh no, people actually aren't safe. And here, you lose the Guardians of the Globe at the end of the first episode, and much of the tone surrounds. We've got to get those back, because everyone else we have are scrubs. Oh, and by the way, during the tryouts, uh, pretty much every matchup has a large, burly man who is incompetent. And a, a clever lady girl who who solves that and beats him. And the one time that the man wins, he lifts her up. So again, messaging doesn't matter. Moving on. Uh, yeah. Ultimately, I find myself asking. Outside of the spectacle, the show is getting a lot of buzz, mostly because of spectacle, and then because of dad vibes. And that's exactly why my father-in-law asked me to watch the show because I can see the the parental fatherhood focus here. I get it. You want to raise your boy to take up the trade. Ultimately, it's to conquer Earth, sure. But at the same time, it's a way of life that you've taken on that has done very little but reward you. You get to have whatever you want to have for a time, and then when it's time to get dirty, you conquer a place, you move on, you start again, and you find some local cuisine, 
You find some local tale. You start a satellite family, and you just repeat that. You have enormous time spans and all the power ever, so why not? But family, though. So, outside of that, is the violence meaningful? Chucks. That's the hard question. Is the violence here meaningful, thematically or explicitly? The violence, thematically, yes. And I say that because of what it does for the characters that are there and how you feel for that characters and to make you feel for what happens to that character and like Mark and the ass beating he gets at the end or the the deaths of the Guardians of the Globe at the beginning. It, it, there is some form of meaning in those um, or the other violence and stuff that happens. It It's there to glorify it in the aspect of when the fight um, when the fight occurs. So I say it is, it's a fine line. It's barely meaningful because it helps out in certain situations and other situations it doesn't. Could you tell this story without cranial explosions? And uh, a scene that I I saw was happening, and it's, people remember the scene. And instead of going, oh, how awful, I went, fuck, yeah, all right, now we're going metal, which is when... Um, Nolan uses Mark as a fender as a subway is running at him, and Mark's body is pulping people, and he can't help himself. So he's the prow, proud, ramming prow of a vessel. Uh, and I would imagine that something like that would take a couple centuries to get over, but of course, the character will have to recover and be a chipper protagonist afterwards and not be in a mental hell until they either collapse on themselves or take over the planet. Like, that's a really strong visual scene, I think. That deserves a better show around it, which happens far too often these days. But outside of the sensational pieces, if it was like neck twists or blam pow blap comic book style, or even make the violence abstract, like pretend this is a machine heads story, and it's all about just dollars, money, financial ruin. It doesn't hit the same way, but you could set up the same stakes without using meter. You could. You could definitely do it. But I think for this show and the way the comic book, was, comic book was originally written, it helps it. And like I said, some aspects. It, it the, the meat terror is needed to give you that feeling of, oh shit, things are bad. Because if you snap somebody's neck, like, oh, it's bad. But you snap, snap somebody's neck off and show their spine out or have their head explode. Yeah, you're going to be like, holy crap, that just that's dark. And it gets you invested in the aspect of how dark is this going to get because of what's happening to these people. Is things going to get worse? What? Who's going to have that happen to them next? So it helps out in those things. Okay. The level of impact of what we saw, in my opinion, is only maintained in the end of Episode 1, the end of Episode 7, and most of episode, about the first half of Episode 8. And that's where Kirk, Kirkman's hand is the most direct. The advantage of having seen what you saw in the beginning of the show is that you're terrified. Like, is this going to happen again? What show is this? And you're kept in suspense for a certain amount of time, about as long as the show lasts, to see if something similar will happen. And the reason the memes spread from the, uh, from the Think Mark moment is because it was impactful at the end. So how many times can they pull this trick again? Because you kind of know the forward arcs. You know what's coming up ahead, Chucks. 
and you might know the capstone moments that are like, oh, wow, if this pops off. But I can't help but think back to that. I bring this up occasionally. The issue of the comic book where, where Batman dies and Spider-Man is holding his like corpsified husk looking very sad on the cover of the issue. But then that never happens on the inside. How many times can you pull that on the target audience before they go, oh, yeah. oh weird, that guy, that guy melted. Uh, uh, two to three. That's about it. You get there are another 90 issues, 120 issues of the comic book to cover. I don't think it's gonna fucking work. No, you're gonna have they're gonna have to find new ways of doing that because then, then uh, the species found a virus that kills off 99.9% of vulture mites, and then the vulture mites have to come to Earth, and then Mark fights them, but he does not kill. And then one of them live on the moon, and then one of them uh kills my girlfriend. No, he gives her an abortion with his foot, and then Mark gets very mad and he kills a guy. But then the Viltra Mites are scaled, and they say we want to live on the Earth with the people, and we call a pinky truce. Uh, but then the uh, the brain parasites appear, and the Viltra Mites have clones, and they shadow box, and then uh, Mark hits Super God Saiyan, Super God Invincible 2. But then his dad is in prison with Alan back on Viltrum, and they're making a time machine. Like, do you kind of see how this goes? No, I see how it goes. Don't be wrong. Like, if If you read it in a funny voice, it's a lot less impactful. You read anything in a funny voice, it's less impactful. Read it, read that same voice and read the diary of Anne Frank. <laughs> Make sure to give him roticism. Yeah. But in terms of contrivances and events, you know how. Did, did you ever watch the Berserk animated films, the three? Mm, say what? So Berserk has three CG movies. Have you ever seen them? Yeah, yeah. You showed them to me. Good. You kind of remember them, right? Yeah. Okay. That's generally considered to be the Golden Age arc. Starting off with Guts the Mercenary Teen, then ending up with the Eclipse event. And that's like 15% of the Berserk story. I mean, that shit stands on its own. And it's from a certain time. It's a certain focus. It's very intimate. And then going beyond the scope of that tale gives the world much more time to breathe and flesh out, and I respect the fact that the events that happen there don't just get brushed under. It's more impactful than Pickle used to be a bad man, but now we're friends. Frieza wouldn't be friends, so now he's gone. Vegeta is friends. It's more impactful than that. So, I will give you that, but you're forgetting something, sir. Frieza becomes a friend and an ally during the, uh, what is it? Yeah, two months later. Two shows later, and then he's Golden Freezer, and then he betrays anyway. Yeah. But again, again, it's like we resolve this story, about, and then he's back from hell. That's yeah. CT. Yeah, that, that's, that's fucking, that is definitely comic book storytelling. I mean, the only force that can stop him is Battle Pope, actually, or his psychic Jesus with the infinite reses. But when you have, Kirkman can't help himself. He's going to weave violence into everything he does, because that's part of the language he uses. On the palette of colors, it is, an, it is an effective color. But if you just use red and black all the time, you do get Darkest Dungeon, which means you go, okay, this is not as like this is not as striking anymore. Is that an eyeball? That's an eyeball. All right. But the telling a zombie story limits the number of options you can usually focus on. You can be creative, but people expect <clears throat> like five flavors. Telling a superhero story, especially an ensemble one, also limits the playing field and sets up certain implicit rules of what you do and don't do. And Kirkman doesn't really 
break any of those rules. It's actually a quite by the numbers story. The difference is the aesthetic because the violence is louder. So within that, we now know that Netflix has commissioned seasons two and three, whatever that happens to be. I don't know that the show can survive past season five. They either have to speed up events or turn down the level of double reversals because I don't know about you, but <laughs> it's fucking stupid. When the plot point to solving one of the last crises is that Mark has to convincingly tear out his hair to resemble Mohawk Mark, who is a remnant clone from a parallel dimension to fool the bad guy into thinking he's not dead yet again and then kill the bad guy to prevent the Ice Age or some shit? You're beyond having lost me. You've cut, you got me again and then I walked away for a third time. Not good storytelling. Cool contrivance. Great for comic book heads because more shit keeps happening. But I don't know what story you're telling anymore. You know, my wife had two abortions. Does that really belong in this conversation? Well, I mean, it's a grounded story about family, but sometimes superheroes die in meat explosions. Or am I, am, am I just, am I missing something here, Chucks? No, you're not missing anything. You, you have a point there. Like, yes, there are, there are some silly shit because you put yourself in a corner. And that's what's one thing that's good about TV. You can rewrite the shit that you, you do that to. You sit there and go, what the fuck was I thinking? Like, yeah, I put myself in a quarter then, but I don't have to do it now. And you change it. You go, okay, well, this time I'm going to fucking change it up. And you do. And you go, okay. And you do you it. Some of it. This is true. Changes were made. It's, <clears throat> I think part of the problem for me is what I demand of storytelling is somewhat different to the point where the more I immerse myself in good fiction, mm -hmm. the more I kind of want to go back and read books that I didn't read. Like when they say, oh, these are some of the all-time greats. I go, yeah, cool, yeah, I, I hear I hear that Crime and Punishment is lit. I will definitely check that out someday. I will definitely read Anna Karenina. I will get on that. But no, joking. it's possible that before whatever my development level is at this point, by exposing myself to a myriad of stories, many trashy some insightful, a few goddamn downright horrific. I'm gaining a broader sense of reference of what interests me, what reflects upon something, and what I can talk about to people. Because, uh, bless your heart, Chucks, you're one of the few people that I can speak to at length. You can at least hang, if not contribute, insightful and interesting reflections without saying, yeah, you're dumb, you're dumb, you're big gay dumb, versus you know, just shut up and eat the, eat the cupcake. Just do it. It's it's spaghetti. What's there to demystify? Do you want to know what farmer picked the grain and who milled it? Fucking eat the spaghetti. You want some Parmesan? Actually, I want to know what farmer picked it. Picked everything. It, you you do. That's why you have a, a an affliction in the same spectrum as I do. Mm -hmm. Well, it's more weighted these days, but the reasons interest you. I get more than nitty gritty or contextual reasons. You like more facts, which. Helps you go, oh yeah, that made sense. This led to that, that to that. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, I encourage more flavors if you're able to express the conversation in the first place. To have the conversation to say, did you see what I saw? You didn't. Interesting. Let's talk about that. That's good shit. I like that shit. And you're you're difficult to get butthurt. I think your minefield is is, is less dense and more spread out than most. I, so I think in the, the, the 
what, six years we've been doing this, you've, you've only pissed me off once, slightly. And that was like when we first got back doing this. Well, maybe more than once, and it, because it hit a little close to home. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but that's the thing. I, either you've resolved a lot of these things, or um, I just have not the right buttons to push yet. And anytime you, you get me riled up, it's more because you, you know what to say to make a poor comparison to get me to react because they go, you're just, okay, you're, you're, you're fooling around. Fine. Yes. But when it comes, watching, <clears throat> watching Invincible has me more interested in watching the boys, not because there are similar shows, but because there's a little more expectation that if it's well-liked, maybe there's a reason beyond the surface of why it is well-liked. I and maybe there's something that I can find that people aren't discussing, and it's beyond. Oh man, they say fuck, and then there's blood, and sometimes a titty. That that'd be a poor reason to watch any show. I mean, that's the reason why I watch the Notebook, not the blood, but the titty, partial side boob. Um, Isn't that why Game of Thrones took off? For those three reasons, some people. <laughs> um, Man, I've, I lost train of thought once you said Game of Thrones. I couldn't stop laughing in my own head. Uh, I, I, I'm the same way with those type of conversations. Like when people will come in and be like, "Oh, I just, I just like that," and I, I haven't been able to discuss anything about the boys with anybody yet. And I watched the first season, and I enjoyed the first season. And the guy who wrote the boys did it as a essentially to say. Like, you know, this, like, superheroes are kind of assholes. Like, what happens if superheroes were like movie stars? And uh, he did a, a, he did it well in the comic books. I only know a little bit about it. I haven't, I'm not in, as in depth with Invincible. Uh, I enjoyed season one. I haven't seen season two of the boys. I want to see what they do. Uh, let me know when you watch it. I'll rewatch one and watch season two so we can discuss it one day. Okay, now I've got a reason beyond personal curiosity because I think that I'm encouraged by our conversation here where you haven't had as much to offer, mostly reactionary, but I'm also assaulting you with impressions. I get a little bit dense, I apologize. No, you're good. I would be interested in discussing what we saw and why we saw now in context of comparison that a major media conglomerate has appropriated and created a interpretation of written work. And they have to do so in, in, instead of a read-at-your-pace format to watch it as it comes at you so yeah i'll watch a little and depending what point we're on we'll discuss what we know well i can't I'll... wait till the lord of the rings comes out on amazon have you oh, seen there's a show? yeah no, they're making I... a show yeah it comes out next year i think fall 2022 okay i i'm willing to look at things with the well detached analysis followed by fuming disappointment that it wasn't handled in the way that I would find more most edifying. So pu purely vain analysis. Well, actually, let me give you two more things that are a different subject because uh, I'm getting the feeling you want to go to bed sometime soon. Um, it's kind of crazy. I like that we did this, but it's probably going to be fucking unlistenable. So uh, <laughs> I brought up Nick Cage a few hours ago. Yeah, right. I think about five minutes before we started. We're hitting four hours. So I wanted to go see Pig hasn't happened yet because I'm either a, a bum face or I just don't feel like it. And the, the showings are limited. I don't really want to drive out to Bothell to make this happen. So I'll, I'll take a little look. But while we're talking Amazon, I saw Nick Cage's face in a lot of movies. And one of those movies was Leaving Las Vegas. Do you know Leaving Las Vegas? It's the one where he, come, he tries to kill himself away an alcoholic, right? 
Spoiler, he succeeds. Oh, I didn't know that. I, I only know the premise that he's a writer that has writer's block or something and is trying to get one last fling. Okay. So I, by spoiling that, still, please watch this movie. But this movie is an amazing bummer. So he loses his wife. It's not clear whether he loses her because he's drinking or he's drinking because he lost her, but he loses his wife. She leaves him. He loses his job. So everything keeping him attached in any kind of functioning pattern is lost. So he comes up with a plan. Sell all his shit, go to Las Vegas, drink himself to death. And while he's there, he's pawning off his car, his watch. He is aggressively pursuing the idiot doom spiral. It is like suffocatingly depressing. But it's Nick Cage, who is a good actor, despite what people say about him. And while he's there, he meets Elizabeth Shue, who is a prostitute, who is also in a spiral. She's proud about what she does. She's good at what she does. and But she's still looking for a way to get away from her pimp, who is monstrously abusive. Not in loud ways, except for a quiet times where you just see it. And the pimp himself is also in a bad way, so nobody in this movie is having a good time. But Nick Cage solicits her. He says, come over, I got money. When she gets there and tries to work him, he says, well, you know, I'll, I'll pay you for some more time and I got all the booze you want. Just hang out. And they both find that a lonely nugget in their heart gets satisfied by having the company of one another who are not judging one another. And basically, since she recognizes that she needs companionship that's not trying to get in her pants, although it would be nice occasionally, she invites him to stay with her. And he says something really profound, not profound, but it's it's quietly meaningful to the character that he is, which is, you can never ask me to stop drinking. She doesn't answer. Just, okay. And then the movie proceeds where she tries to maybe eke out a spark of hope for something positive together, and maybe get a little direction, a little get him out of his depression, uh, find a way to extend their time together. And he's not having it. They start destabilizing in their quiet paradise relationship in Las Vegas because of the trajectory that he's on. And in one of the most significant and depressing death scenes that I could have seen, which I guess maybe Drive Angry was a callback years later, we get to see the end of his journey and the quiet scampering that she has to do to pursue whatever other life she has. <clears throat> and it's portrayed in a way that uh, her, her character will have these like on the couch therapist session moments where she's speaking in reflection. Her eyes are always downcast. We don't know if she's in therapy or if that's her private manifestation of the quiet things she wished she could say to others, but nobody will listen. Also, Chuck's cool side fact about this little film here: uh, it had no budget, and they had to do guerrilla shooting on the streets in Las Vegas, and then film in hotel rooms and public spaces. And they also, instead of using 32mm print at the time, which was standard, they used 16mm. So most of the shots are very close and very tight. But I found this translates beautifully well into the theme of the picture, which is, nobody has a good field of view. Nobody understands what's happening outside of their particular funnel of perception. They're just stuck on their stupid, shitty path. And this is what they're pursuing. And it's portrayed like devastatingly earnestly. There are moments of levity. There are moments of zaniness. There are moments of quiet satisfaction. I recommend this film as a bummer. It is a challenging watch, I would say. 
Yes, there are titties in it. No, that's not the point. It's it is a deliberate end. Also, to further cement what a beautiful nightmare this is, the film is based on a book. The book is contested to be either uh, semi-autobiographical or completely autobiographical. This is all the author wrote and published. Maybe he wrote more, but that's all he published. At some point in his life, maybe because he needed more booze money, I don't know, he optioned the film rights to his book. And then days after he signed the deal, he shot himself. It's <laughs> unclear as to why he shot himself, either because he had nothing else left, or he realized he lost grip and control of the one like thing that he did. And of course, uh, posthumously, the film had awards. Because, again, this is... It feels so stupidly fucking sincere that uh, it, it, it evoked a significant reaction within me. Not just because I'm a fancy for alcohol, but because I saw actors portray something stupidly real, even though it is fictionalized. And it makes you want to have a conversation with the guy who wrote it, but you can't outside of a seance, possibly. So I, I would give it my recommendation as an absolute nightmare bummer of a indie film, if that makes sense. Um, what was... This it's sticking with Nicolas Cage, different movie, not as big as a bummer. What's the one where he thinks he's a vampire? I don't remember. I don't think I know that one. I'm not sure I watched it. Okay. I'd like to, because again, I want to explore more Nicolas Cage because the public perception persona is not what the actor does, is not who the person is, and the cycle again then repeats. What a bizarre sequence this is. But I'm I'm game for more Nicky because. I, what the man does on screen translates to what he feels inside much of the time, and I, I think Red Letter Media did a fantastic job of joking around talking about the pig. Where when his face pops up, you just have this knee jerk reaction of, "Oh, it's like a red box movie that just comes up." It's like when you see a, a Liam Neeson's face on the cover uh, on a film that says something like, "I'm going to shoot you," which is a beautifully direct way of saying what the film is. But you can't just call the film "I'm going to shoot you." It's got to skip to "I'm going to shoot you part four or some shit. Like, you, you forget Liam is a capable actor. He can do good things, but, you know, liquidity is more important than high art projects. So while you get to see him in Buster Scruggs every now and then, he's probably going to be back at I'm going to shoot you part seven next month. <laughs> Who knows? So uh, I'm not sure about the vampire film leaving Las Vegas because he doesn't. Um Definitely left a mark that I appreciate. Uh, in much more disposable news, I did also start watching Vindland Saga. That's a good one. I don't know. Uh, it seems perfectly competent so far. Uh, interesting to see Japanese portrayal of a Western society. And we'll see where it goes, because I think it's going to go exactly where I think it's going to go. And it might do... It might look good while it's getting there. So I don't think it's going to be an insightful watch. But at the very least, um, I, I dig the ships and the straw hay and the snow and the longhouses and uh, Tozu. <laughs> and of, I, co of course, huh? I watched it in Japanese. That's one of the few ones that I watched in Japanese, and it 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 I enjoyed it. Like you said, you're you're not. I never got into it for the dialogue. I wanted to see the end of the journey and see what happens. And I don't know if they made season two. If they have. I need to find it and find out if it's on Netflix. 
Because the manga is only essentially two volumes. That's okay. And that actually makes it more appealing because the creator had a story in mind. Then he fucking wrote it and it's done. He can do other things that lash to the property over and over. Is that a sound financial decision? I don't give a fuck. How good's your story? And then the story is well beloved, portrayed, etc., etc. I mean, points just for captures towing two boats. And then one of the boats is a kid going, I'm going to fucking kill you! And the captain's saying, yeah, yeah, it's okay. He'll tire himself out. It's not a problem. Leave him there. Just, just let just let him tire himself out. So with the, with the last five minutes, because I, I don't know how well a four-hour podcast is going to do, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll stick with it. Um, do, do we want to tell the fans the new and exciting thing we ventured into right before we went on our little leave? I mean, at this point, you have to remind me, man. Oh, uh, well, you can now find this lovely show on uh, Google Podcast. Um, we have uh, put it on there. So if you want to listen to an audio form, uh, we have done it there. So if you want to download it, you can find us on there. It is Grime and Game, just like it is on uh, YouTube. Uh, but it's Grime and Game. Now, we're not 100% sure if we're putting it on Spotify yet, but I think that might be the plan later on. Uh, you can find our first episode, the other episodes, uh, You'll, you might see on there in a little bit. But uh, I just want to give everybody a heads up. We're on there now. Um, with us being well, back, um, go ahead, Robbie. I don't I don't mind necessarily doing longer formats if we have things to say that are intelligible. I mean, we're, we're all over the place, but we also keep the conversation going pretty well, despite minimal editing ability. So I would say yes. if you want to spend half of your shift listening to this kind of garbage, we can probably make more of it. Oh, no, we, we definitely can. Uh, it's a half for the normal person. It is a uh, third of mine. <laughs> Damn it. That's okay. You you get to be seated for most of it, right? I do. I do get to be seated for, um, I would say, 70 to 80% of the time. Oh, little small favors. So, yes, we're trying to post these in an audio format. I know discoverability sucks for the most part, but, uh, you know, there's a podcast that I enjoy out there that's been running for two to four hour sessions for most of its existence despite them trying to be under that and i found it quite quite enjoyable to listen to people that you come to know parasocially uh discuss both insightful matters and dumbass shit and i imagine i'm not alone in that so you are welcome to follow us either on google podcast or possibly spotify in the future or whatever wherever you find your podcast you may find us there um no only those two <laughs> only those two assholes I can't have more than one. Uh, I actually said I listened to the podcast. Uh, funny thing is, I, I was looking at analytics while we talked a little bit. Um, you can definitely tell when you look at analytics who the two people were, were me and you, because it's where the, the blimps are right where we <laughs> where we're at. <laughs> um, and it's it, it's it's neat that they actually have that on there for the, the system they use. Um, but I, I'm excited that our podcast is on there. I enjoy the audio version of it more i can say I, I for some reason not having a video put behind it i've seemed to notice that i enjoy it more uh it is more entertaining to me just listening to us talk than trying well, to watch a video doing it so if then you that, guys enjoy that let us know that will likely i mean for you and i i don't really have an issue doing the audio only track but if it's on youtube it's a bit of a problem to have a still image or nothing for its runtime ergo if this is, is to become an audio exclusive format, we will keep you guys in the loop. Yep. Um, like, I also hate the phrase you guys. <laughs> oh, how about this? How about y'all? Y'alls? I'm y'alls. good with y'alls. Yeah. It's, it's only one L. It's no S. It's y'all. 
If you put an uh, S on it, you mean like you motherfuckers. Listen here, y'alls. Like I'm getting pissed. Like you don't ever put an S on it. Like if you go, hey y'all, it's it's everybody. You put an S on it, you done fucked up on something. That's a constructive piece of information. I didn't know. Thank you very much. Yeah. Now I'll well, be able to use my y'all appropriately. Yes. Um, with that being said, I, th- I think we're kind of getting back in the swing of things. If that's my understanding with you there, bro. That we're going to um, create more content here. I would enjoy creating more content slash creating something that you and I might be, uh, if not proud of, then acknowledge that was worth discussing, examining, sharing, uh, pursuing a long distance relationship, basically with minds. Yes. And um, we can look forward to this becoming discovered and being popular, uh, maybe two or three years after we're done doing whatever this is, and then subsequently being canceled uh, a little bit after that. <laughs> so I, I'm look for, looking forward to that particular journey. I'm just waiting for the day that somebody finds out where I work and then shares it with them because then yeah. I'm fucked. <laughs> no, no, it's all, it's all going to be outside of the statute of limitations. You'll be fine. Oh, no, no, it don't matter. They don't you know, they've they've mentioned that. They make you sign a little document that states that. Doesn't matter when you posted it, when you said it, if you said it, you're screwed. But with that being said, guys, uh catch us here coming back up. We got uh, multiple videos posting. Uh this will be posted on the eighth, which is Sunday, August eighth of twenty twenty one. Um, and you guys can check it out. This is gonna be episode five of the Crime and Game Podcast. Um, like I said, you can find us on uh Google Podcast right now, and potentially on Spotify. But for the episode, I am Nut Chucks, and as always, with me, your co-host, Browbeat. We'll see you guys next time.